This episode of Tales from the Crypt is brought to you by the Cash App. You freaks already know all about them. And if you don't, let me tell you about them. The Cash App is allowing you to stack sats. Uh, so you can buy and sell Bitcoin on the Cash App. You can send Bitcoin from the Cash App to a personal wallet, from a personal wallet to the Cash App. And then on top of that, you get uh, the ability to use the Cash App at other places with their boost program. So you get a specialized debit card. Uh, you get to put your signature on it, Bitcoin symbol, Lightning, whatever you see fit. And then you go to partner merchants, whether it be Whole Foods, Chick-fil-A, uh, DoorDash, local coffee shops, and you save money when you shop with your boost card, with your boost enabled. Use the code STACKINGSATS, that's one word, S-T-A-C-K-I-N-G-S-A-T-S. You're going to get $5, then $5 is going to go to Alves Lacrosse, a charity very near and dear to our heart. Again, if you haven't downloaded it yet and you're in the U.S. and you're looking to buy Bitcoin, what the hell are you waiting for? Use the code STACKINGSATS. Download the Cash App from your local app store today. What is up, freaks? Welcome back to Tales from the Crypt. We're here in like the D League relegation studio. I'm sorry, gentlemen. Uh, the the relegation studios in my apartment building are are filling up tonight for some reason. And we're now in the kitchen. It's actually a great setting. I'm happy we're here. Uh, we're drinking some native Venezuelan uh, cocktail. We'll get into that in a little bit. But first, I have to introduce my guest, the co-founders of Ledin.io, Mauricio D. Bartolomeo. Got it. And Adam reads a lot easier. That's right. What's up, gentlemen? How are you? We're great. Doing great, man. Thanks so much. Thanks, Thanks for coming by. Oh, it's uh, it's our pleasure. Uh, we've been uh, we've been chatting on Telegram for a while now. For what? Like, I feel like Mauricio, me and you for like almost a year now. Yeah, right? man. It's been a while. We're close to that. Um, <laughs> before we jump into what you guys are doing at Led Ledin, um, let's jump into your story about Bitcoin. You guys are uh, very fascinating story, in my opinion, um, and. Uh, I think it's an important one for everybody to hear. So how did you guys come to find Bitcoin, be where you are in Toronto, and starting uh, Ledin.io? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I, uh, I think so. For those who don't know, I'm Venezuelan, and I, I want to give a shout out to mis amigos in Venezuela. Salud. Estamos tomando diplomático con Marty. <laughs> Pero anyway, so I'm originally from there. I, I was born and raised there. My whole family is still there. Um, in about 2003, I, I went to Canada to do university. Uh, I went to the Richard Ivey uh, Business School, and that's where I met Adam. But uh, after I graduated, my whole family was still down there, and uh, you know, the economy wasn't really in the shambles that it is today. So um, I was always back and forth. Uh, my family was always trying to get me to move back. Uh, and I was in that process. I I'd worked for a few years in Canada. I worked for a few years in Venezuela, did a project with my dad. But in 2013, when Chavez dies and uh, Maduro wins the, or steals, better term, the new election, and there's, you know, the country's condemned to six more years of communism, I made the call to essentially spend the next years in Canada. But my family didn't. My family wanted to stay. So as I'm in Canada, my youngest brother was trying to start his own business. He had just graduated from university. And uh, the kind of setup we had in my family was like my dad was kind of the, always our angel investor and we had to pitch to him and the brothers were the analysts and then, you know, he would you know, give us a seat check for whatever it was. And um, at the time, my youngest, it was my youngest brother's turn. So he was pitching ideas to sort of start a business. But the way the country was, it was like nothing was viable. And I was a finance guy. So I got to like, you know, check or veto whatever the, the part of the financial aspect of the investment. 
And uh, it was funny because he was getting really frustrated, like nothing was really getting the check mark. And uh, at one point he gets really frustrated and he basically says, listen man, I'm gonna do this. And he presents two options. One option was uh, real-time sex toy delivery. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the other option was mining Bitcoin. Venezuelans uh, very horny. Huh? Well, no, he wanted to do this in Miami. <laughs> oh, okay. I know, I, I know people in Miami and, are very. Hard, and so he wanted crazy. to leverage the Uber delivery system for it. But anyway, um, so as obviously the two options being compared, and I'm starting to take a look. That was my first real look at Bitcoin, uh, just reading his concept of mining Bitcoin. So to me at the time, obviously A was just way better than the other option. Uh, but even better, I kind of started understanding what Bitcoin was and how mining worked, and I saw mining as an essential part of Bitcoin, with the biggest input being power costs in Venezuela having highly subsidized power. It was almost like a no-brainer. Was Bitcoin sort of foreign to you at this point when the oh, yeah. mining was introduced yeah. to you? Or? Yeah, I was, that was my first exposure to Bitcoin. It was my brother wanting to buy these computers to mine this Bitcoin thing. And I was like, okay, well, I was analyzing and I, I became fascinated with how it worked, but I, I just didn't know how big it was, right? I, I thought this was like a niche thing that he wanted to do. And I was working in Canada, so I went back to Canada, and then I started catching up on how much developing was happening in Canada around Bitcoin, because a lot of core devs, like a, a big names, live in Toronto, actually, and, and in Canada. So I started seeing, okay, this is really not just a Venezuelan thing. Like, there's, there's value into this. And then I was, I was getting more and more in, interested, but then I fly back for Christmas. And when I fly back for Christmas, my brother has, like, smile ear to ear and like three times as much computers and i'm like what the, <laughs> what the hell right what uh what stage were we were gpu mining or no i think this was uh s5 s7s okay. i forget exactly which ones i believe there were s7s like the first s7s um if i recall correctly but when i went back i saw all these new computers and i was like before even talking to him i went to my dad i'm like did you give him more money like what happened because i didn't believe that this you know i just didn't I needed to understand. I wanted to be. I wanted someone to explain to me, and my dad's like, "No, no, he paid me back. Like this is all his stuff." So then I went and chatted with him, and uh, he showed me how he was mining this and selling this. And there was an exchange working in Venezuela at the time called Sir Bitcoin, and uh, he just sold the Bitcoin on the spot. And at that moment, that was my invitation to the rabbit hole. Uh, I essentially descended from that moment on. I got back to Canada, quit my job, and just went full-time into Bitcoin, um, started mining. And that, that was kind of how I got into Bitcoin, so I'll stop there. <laughs> <laughs> it's, again, it's fascinating. Like, and we'll get it further into your story. Adam, what is your tale? How did you get into it? Yeah, so full credit to Mauricio for getting me into Bitcoin. Boss. So um, Mauricio comes back to Canada. Uh, <laughs> we're, we're good buddies. We've been chatting uh, you know, on and off all the time he was in Venezuela and uh, comes back, we start grabbing beers, catching up, and he's telling me about this ability to hook up your computer to the internet and essentially print money. And I was blown away because my background's in energy. So I had worked in uh, 10 years building wind and solar projects and structuring finance and uh, operations around uh, that sector. And so the concept of turning electricity into money uh, and storing electricity was just amazing to me and so uh, at the time too energy storage in the physical sense was really blowing up and the hardcore I'm an engineer and the, the hardcore engineers will call me out on this and have when I call Bitcoin energy storage because <laughs> I know you're not physically storing electrons but in a sense you are because you're converting that value that is uh, disappears in a second when an electron moves into something that is stored uh, in, in really perpetuity so that really twisted my whole concept of how I thought everything was put together and I was blown away and just got more and more into it 
And then from there, I said, you know what, we, we have to do this. And so I always thought, yeah, you have to put your, your mind and energy into something and go after it. So we both uh, put some money together, invested in a mine in Quebec, obviously Quebec having the lowest cost of power in Canada. And that was our first introduction to it. Uh, and, we, and we did that for about a year. This is back in, in 2016. And then uh, from there, we wanted to get, uh, uh, really do something that, that better used our skill set. So it was is much more of, okay, this is interesting mining, but you, know, we're, you have to do this on a really, really big scale. And so it was, okay, how do we do something that really adds value to the Bitcoin community? And, and what does this sector need? And that's kind of what we'll get, we'll get into with, with Latin, but that's kind of the predecessor. Yeah, and so like Quebec at the time, because all the miners flew into Quebec for the, the cheap hydroelectric, right? And exactly. They ramped up the taxes on them, what, like last year? Yeah, so Quebec, so obviously Americans and Canadians know the, how much Canadians are obsessed about their health care. The thought of electricity is almost that same obsession in Quebec because everything is powered by electricity in Quebec. People heat, heat their homes with electricity in Quebec. So it's an easy political uh, story to say that these... Chinese miners are coming to Quebec to steal our, our cheap electricity. And it was easy to spin it. So what that did was create political willpower to uh, uh, really, I guess, put a stop on it and really try to figure this out. So, Yeah, they, they actually threw a pretty nasty moratorium and all new mining development, which actually caught us because uh, we were in the process of developing this really large facility in Quebec, like three megawatts. That's, that was like our first facility with this very large real estate company. And uh, once, actually the, the morning, or I believe... So the Tuesday, we were supposed to get the drawings approved by our engineers. On Monday, Quebec slapped the moratorium for no further developments of any blockchain data centers. Uh, so that essentially, to us, that was a huge blessing in disguise because we had, we had continued on uh, trying to develop a large facility with a big company, actually, uh, where Adam used to work. And uh, when the moratorium kind of hit, that was our, our basically a blessing in disguise for us to now switch because we had already been talking about lending we knew that we we knew that if we figure out a way of financing bitcoin and allowing people to continue to hold it and be owners of the upside and not having to sell it to get that liquidity if we could figure that model uh, to do it cleanly there were a few people doing it at the time but we just didn't like how they were doing it they were they, were, they had either ico structures or, or they just had different terms or, or they weren't as transparent as we wanted them to be so i as a user wasn't comfortable with the offerings and we just wanted to create something that we would use um and essentially that's what we ended up doing so one you wanted people to be able to hold their bitcoin not sell and two you didn't think anybody was doing it correctly at the time, at least to the, to the level that we wanted to do it, or at least yeah. not doing that well in Canada. Because there, there, there were some isolated companies that were offering it in the States, but those, those actually, it, it wasn't very practical as a, as a Canadian to borrow US dollars if you wanted to invest in Canadian dollars uh, and everything else was in cash. So you just, you took this unnecessary Forex risk, right? So we, we thought there was huge potential to do this in Canada. And from there, Canada had an amazing brand to, to sort of create a global company. Uh, because Canada has this aura of good vibes, solid banking, good vibes, <laughs> uh, and so it, 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 it's actually been uh, it's been quite a treat because we found incredibly brilliant people to join our team in Canada. Our team is in incredibly multicultural, actually. Where over half of us are from that time, even though we all live in Toronto. And uh, yeah, Adam, I'm, I'm the only one born in Canada on our team. So <laughs> we say that a lot. I love it. It's like I mean, it's it's similar in New York, but like Toronto especially is so multicultural, and it's super cool. We're all Canadian citizens, but uh, I'm the only one born there. Half our team's from Latam, and uh, our CTO is Egyptian. 
um, yeah. you know, many different are, are other developers for Croatian. So yeah. super cool. Boss. And yeah. yeah. And then from, I guess, you know, just to get into some specifics of certain things that I particularly didn't like about the offerings at the time is that a lot of them were, there was a token involved, like, and that's just not a good user experience. Just if you have to buy a token to pay interest, or if you have to just buy a token for anything that you don't really it's unnecessary for right and uh, and then the other piece was that there were the other people that were doing this in a non-ICO way their lowest ticket was 10k and we saw this in like 10k that's that's a great if you're a very wealthy American but if you're someone in Minnesota trying to buy more equipment 10k is as, as, a, as a bare minimum ticket it's just not gonna cut it right and so I guess that's a good segue into what is your your I don't want to say your target audience, but uh, your typical user, your average user, where are they like miners looking for a $500? Well, no, I mean, it, it's evolved and it's a big mix. Like, so we have very large clients that essentially are financing their business with Bitcoin. Like they're, they're very big holders and they've gone into like the Bitcoin industry. And so essentially, instead of selling, they dip into the, the Bitcoin back loan to essentially fund operations without having to sell the Bitcoin. Um, that's, that's, that's a growing uh, market for us. Uh, LATAM, uh, so we announced our service in Latin America, six Latin American countries uh, in uh, June 8th in the Blockchain Summit in Mexico City. And since then, it's been growing way faster than, than our Canada, uh, essentially, side of things. Yeah, so let's, uh, let's talk about that. Last time we, we saw each other in person was Consensus. That was May. It was like a month before that. And mm -hmm. we were pre-interview talking you guys said a lot has changed since then what uh what particularly um obviously you've expanded in a lot of yeah so we launched our savings account uh which was a great which was a big uh moment i guess and and in latam in latam and in canada it really helped people kind of see it as you know savings and credit are two products that you're used to I guess in your in your traditional banking platforms so um, and, and a lot of times a Bitcoin back loan is not the most intuitive thing to explain to people uh, and why it makes sense from a tax standpoint from a opportunity cost standpoint uh, but yeah in, in essence it's um, sorry, I lost my trail of thought here a little bit um, so yeah the, you were, yeah, yeah, we we're just talking about uh, how much it's changed. Like you guys expanding the LATAM, you saying yeah. there's a lot more demand down there. Like, yeah, you guys see that right away, and so people are are not used to Bitcoin financial products, but they get credit and uh, savings. Yeah, well, so, no, essentially that that helped, and when we started essentially telling people what we did. Um, a lot of people actually like both products, and, and the savings is actually a, a much lower friction product because it, it, you can try it with, you know, 0.1 Bitcoin and 0 0.01 Bitcoin. Just get a feel for the platform and get it out. And uh, it gives you both options. So when you need a loan, you can access liquidity, but when you don't need a loan, you can still earn some interest uh, while you're waiting, I guess, while you don't need liquidity. And uh, when we launched LATAM, we started working with some, uh, some content makers in LATAM, which has really, uh, you know, let people know that we exist uh, beyond the conference. And they're essentially coming over. And, and the great thing about LATAM is people come and try us for the $500 feature. So our, our lowest loan denomination is $500. But the same people come back you know, weeks later for like five, six thousand, ten thousand dollars $10,000, and they grow with us. Um, a lot has changed from us from a, from a you know, client base. Uh, we have a lot more users now. Um, our users are coming from, obviously, a lot more users coming from LATAM. Uh, we're getting a lot of traffic from Spain just because everything is, is in Spanish uh, mm -hmm. and there's a lot of overlap in those markets. Um, but uh, yeah, so it, yeah, that, that's been really our, our big focus since we saw you is uh, doing our big LATAM push. 
Mm-hmm. And, and I think uh, just it's worth like stepping back and looking at the philosophy too of what we're doing. Everything that we're building is to help people save in Bitcoin and save more in Bitcoin. So just with that itself, what we want to do is most people in the world are just starting to learn about Bitcoin, let alone the services around it. So we're trying to create as low as friction as possible in everything that we do. So really the introduction of the, of the savings account was there's no minimum. Uh, so you can deposit $5 of Bitcoin if you choose. Uh, hopefully you'll grow that, but we wanted to make sure that there's no friction to get started. And then from there, uh, you, you'll learn about the other products you're offering, what we're offering. One uh, new product that we're launching that we're super excited about that's coming out next week uh, for Canada specifically, and then we'll be expanding region by region, is our, uh, what we're calling our Buy2X product. Uh, so this will be, it's essentially a Bitcoin-backed loan, but the way you can think about a Bitcoin-backed loan right now, it's, it's a mortgage for the Bitcoin you already own. So you don't want to sell your Bitcoin. You can take out some fiat against it, uh, spend that fiat, reinvest it in a different asset. Uh, what, what a Buy2X product is, is it's financing more Bitcoin for you to purchase. So you can take a dollar, uh, we'll, we'll lend you another dollar, and you can buy two Bitcoin. So the end state's similar. So then you have $2 of Bitcoin with a dollar loan against it. But your use case is different. One person wants more Bitcoin. The other person needs fiat. Mm-hmm. And so that's that sounds pretty dope. Because that's what usually what people will do, right, is take out the 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 fiat loan and just buy more Bitcoin with it and hold it. Themselves. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so let's jump into like the risk of all this. This is, I feel like, uh, you guys in this vertical within Bitcoin get a lot of scorn, uh, the, the lending and, and interest rate and savings, uh, and loans, uh, part of Bitcoin finance, uh, the risk. Uh, a lot of people like to say that you guys are lending this money on the other side of the Bitcoin to short, traders who could crash the price and uh, a lot of the knocks on these lending services is that you could uh, develop just get margin call basically and so the question on top of people's minds is uh, how are you managing risk uh, especially if you're operating with short sellers which you probably may not even know and then uh, uh, I guess yeah what are like the risk systems in place and how how do you protect yourself here's a good question when volatility is is high to the downside yeah so I think the first thing that we we should address is it's important that we don't all rebuild the existing system that we already have that would be a complete waste of time Uh, so what we think a lot about is how do we use all the amazing attributes that the Bitcoin network provides Uh, and so with that I guess just starting with uh, the LTV so we have systems in place where we could lend up to 90, 95% loan to value. But with that, if Bitcoin price moves 5%, then suddenly you're getting margin called. So the reason we lend at 50% is for that exact reason that we don't want to have margin calls as part of the product. Uh, part on the timing that we launched, but we've actually never completed a margin call uh, with, with our, our system to date. And we can't take credit for that. That's the Bitcoin price appreciation. So uh, luckily we have the systems in place to manage that. But it's amazing to our users that all of our users have made money by, by using the product and holding their Bitcoin. Uh, so that's the first piece. Uh, the other piece that I'd love Marisa to talk about is our real-time proof of reserves. Yeah, so one thing that, again, back to what, what we wanted to see when, when we used the product. We, before we, we did this, we were Bitcoiners ourselves, right? So in, in building this platform, we, we, wanted to, we basically built a lot of things that we wanted to see. Uh, one of them being uh, the real-time proof of reserves. So not, not every lender does this. Actually, a few do. We're actually one of the only ones that do, which is when a, when a person takes a loan with lead in, we assign an individual unique address for that collateral. That, that's where that person sends the collateral, and they can ping that address as long as the loan is active to see that their funds are there. They can set alerts. They can check it under no third-party explorers. Essentially, they can always verify that their, their assets are there. 
Um, that to us is, is, is big because it helps us build trust. Like we, we didn't do an ICO and raise millions. Uh, when we came out of the gates, we didn't have a big VC backing us. Like everything that we've built has been on the back of clean tech and effort and, and just our appreciation for the community. Um, so we essentially built what we wanted to see. And, and on the back of that, we've earned the support and, and you know, I guess, uh, business of a lot of the Bitcoin community in, in, in Canada and abroad. And so that's one one thing. Um, the other piece on the on the lending, sorry, on the Bitcoin lending side, so for the savings account, uh, the way we generate that interest is, to your point, uh, by lending those Bitcoins out to institutions. Uh, and the way we protect ourselves is essentially taking collateral when we lend out those Bitcoins and only working with very select counterparties that have balance sheets that are, um, you know, well, uh, very well funded and able to sustain any particular, uh, you know, potential default. Yeah, and then on the shorting side, I mean, this isn't excuse me, anything that we're doing specifically, but uh, no one is really, uh, at least from what we hear in the market and articles that have come out recently, uh, no one's shorting Bitcoin right now. <laughs> and, uh, so, and the parties we're lending to are not using it for shorting, they're using it for working capital. So a simple example is an OTC desk trying to manage buyers and sellers. So someone shows up to buy Bitcoin, they don't have the seller lined up yet, it'd be nice if they got them Bitcoin the same day. So we lend it to them, and then they're in and out a, a day of Bitcoin, and they provide a really good user experience. So you can see this is helping create liquidity pools, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah, and then on the downside, so one of the other neat features about our savings account is, so we, we have some clients that, for example, um, have a loan with us, and they're going to be away and out of reach for whatever, like a week or so, and uh, they don't want to get margin called. And that's, that's one thing we, we know, like we're, we don't make money on margin calls. Like we, we want our users to know that. Like the last thing people that come to use our service want is to have their Bitcoin sold. So we work, we're very proactive when it comes to that. And, and in fact, we enable the feature right now with our savings account for if a client knows that they're going to be out of reach for a certain period of time and they just want to be extra safe that they're never going to get margin called during that period, we basically allow them to deposit additional funds into their savings account and give us authorization to meet a call if it happens from those funds. Mm -hmm. um, and that just creates a better user experience. And in the future, we're also working through other options. So for example, uh, in a time of high volatility, we could sell you call it price insurance uh, by way of an option or by way of a, sh a temporary short position. Uh, so these are features that we're thinking through so to make the user experience better and to really let the, let the user know that they have every tool available to not sell their Bitcoin. It's a, it's a, uh, what's the word? Not valiant. Is it valiant? A valiant service to provide, helping people hodl. Um, no, but it Doing is. Doing the best. Yeah. Why, why, uh, why do you think people are so scared of these products? Um, I, I you, think it is, uh, you know, some of it may look like traditional banks, and that's really where the thesis of what we're, we're trying to avoid. Uh, and I think it's, it's just back to being completely transparent, uh, not hiding fees and, uh, you know, things that are, are painful. Yeah, I should probably uh, be transparent here too. This podcast is uh, sponsored by, by another lending company as well. I'm not, this isn't, I'm not here to shill lending products, but it is, uh, no, it is interesting. Like, uh, just following on Twitter, a lot of people get really triggered when people talk about the, the savings account in particular. Yeah, no, I, I bet. And, and even with the Bitcoin back loan, right? Like, I, you know, I, I try to draw an analogy and I wish I was alive at the time when the mortgage was first kind of instituted, but I, I don't really think that anyone, like the first knee-jerk reaction was like, oh great, I have now a first claim on my home. <laughs> but, but essentially the, the thinking went from I have a first claim on my home to it's still my home, I can just buy a bigger one uh, and I can make use of this credit vehicle as best as I can. And I think a lot of it is time, right? Like 
you know, these products are relatively new. Uh, and even when they started being offered, um, there are some stories, and we, we see this in LATAM, like there was a lot of fly-by-night companies back in 2014, 2013 that were doing unsecured lending with Bitcoin, and they just took a lot of money from a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, and right. that, that, of course, is just a, a terrible precedent to have. Uh, and on top of that, you have like the guys that came right after were like or ICO guys. <laughs> and so it's just not really it didn't really help the narrative as far as transparency, honesty and like serious players doing this. Um, so I think as more and more legitimate players come and try to do this in the right way, in a compliance setup that actually has some longevity to it. Um, people will essentially start noticing that these services are actually not that high risk, that yes, they can provide a material benefit. Uh, in fact, you know, like to Adam's point, we, we love the fact that all of our clients have done well. Uh, in the work, the product, quote unquote, is working as we intended it to. It's allowed people, we have clients that have, <laughs> we have clients that took out loans with Bitcoin like, like 3,500 bucks. Uh, and today they're just, you know, they're sitting on their, their collateral worth, you know, three, four times as much. Uh, and they, you know, they could pay back their loan with a fraction of what they left. Yeah. And it's, it seems like in the OTC desk example in particular that, uh, like, it seems like it could work out where it's mutually beneficial for each party involved, all three of you, right? The OTC desk is getting better liquidity, which allows them to get more fees. You are in the middle facilitating the transaction between... Uh, the person putting their Bitcoin up as collateral in this OTC desk and the person putting up their Bitcoin is getting a little vague on what the OTC desk is paying and you guys get a vague on that. Um, so look, is it, it doesn't sound too good to be true. It just sounds like, right, especially if the price of Bitcoin is going up. Well, yeah, and then the way I think of this is, you know, every time you, you know, create a new asset, which doesn't happen often, but when an asset gets created, there's always a big talk around distribution, right? Like distribution can never be fair, can never be equal. There's just going to be some people that have a higher amount and some people that have a lower amount. So every time you create an asset pool, there's the... the the distribution of it is imbalanced, right? And, and so are the, sorts, the, the uses for it and the needs for it and the, and the prices of, of the cost of money that any, any opportunity can pay. So it's just natural to have these facilities that now aggregate capital from people that have an extra amount of it and then facilitate it to people that have a great opportunity and are willing to pay a yield on it. And it just facilitates more development, really. You're just essentially a, a liquidity organizer, if you want to call it that. Yes. Yeah, the other thing I'd say too is uh, obviously this gets talked about a lot, but but Twitter, as much, as active as it is, is and all of the you know discussion that happens around these products, it's still a small part of the overall ecosystem because what we find is most time when we're talking to new customers, we're introducing lending and savings products for the first time, so it's not like they're saying, okay, well, how does this differ from our you know great counterparties in in the market? It's it's what is this and how does it work, uh, and um, yeah, it's just it's interesting. So I think. Bitcoin's hard enough to understand as it is, and then when you layer on these other complexities, it just takes a while to get to get comfortable with it. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, we're only eleven years in. It's pretty crazy to see if these products even exist right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah, and it's been great. I mean, in in North America, we've been somewhat privileged in that we've had a few companies trying to do similar activities, and they essentially spent you know some marketing dollars, trying to like educate the community and what they're doing and how they're doing this, uh, why they're different, why this time around will work because they're compliant, because they're this, because of that. And I think that's very, that's great for the North American community. We're doing a very similar job in LATAM right now, where essentially we're introducing this as, a, as you know, the first kind of compliant, uh, good player to come offer these services in their language, completely like, you know, so that they're completely comfortable for them. And, uh, 
they for, for them it's really the first time they see you know honest people trying to provide this service and we essentially they, they come with really great questions uh, and we're basically there answering like, like exactly what you just asked like how do you generate the yield what happens if the price goes down so all these questions that as you answer them more in North America, they become less and less frequent. Uh, and the, the same will happen there, but to your, it, it really feels like it's an introduction. It's, it's a lot of people just don't even know these services exist to your point. Yeah. And then again, there's like a bunch of questions popping up in my mind. You guys have like a, like a cold storage wallet of reserves. Like is there reserves behind the lending products and stuff like that? Yeah, so with as we, we've mentioned about the real-time proof of reserve, so every loan gets its own address, mm -hmm. and that's all with BitGo. So we generate a unique address for every loan, and the collateral sits there. We don't touch it. And so it's, it's just great because someone can look at their balance at any time during the loan, prove just that the balance is still sitting there. So, so how does that work out, um, like technically? like So somebody's supposed to send their Bitcoin to you, gets loaned out on the other side, but if it stays in this address and doesn't move, are you guys just getting... Uh, Bitcoin from your reserve that you have and then giving it out? Yeah, there. so sorry to, so to clarify, that's for our loan product. Okay. On the savings oh. product, it does get lent out. Okay, okay. And okay. that's, yeah, so in the yeah. savings product, it, it doesn't have a unique, yeah, there is a unique address for a deposit for security purposes, but then after it gets uh, amalgamated and, and lent, lent out. out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So with the loan product, it sits with the Go Trust, like in shared custody, and, and it sits in a unique address within their vault, and our users can ping it throughout the loan lifetime. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, and I, and I think the broader important thing is uh, obviously there's ethics involved in all of this, and we know that if we ever lose one sat, then we're not going to have uh, <laughs> you know a business, and uh, that'll become public very quickly, and it's not at all what we want to do. Uh, so uh, that's uh, I think in a sense, hopefully that's that's some protection there, and that uh, obviously people talk is cheap, but knowing that you won't have a business uh, the day after that happens is, is a pretty strong motivation to make sure you're operating things correctly. Yeah. Right. And speedy. I mean, this is a long-term reputation game, right? Like, exactly. That's uh, you only have one. right. You only have one and it takes one minute to destroy it. Too, right. It's Completely. A, one sat, if you will. Exactly. Um, no, but it's, it's something is like in, is it like an outside observer watching, all of you lending companies try to build these products. It's just you guys get, um, I mean, but it, it, people have these worries for good reasons, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, especially after 2008, like the whole. Yeah, and it's, whole, it's interesting because people say, sometimes they'll talk to investors, they say, oh, well, the lending space is, is you know, it's, it's crowded right now. It's like, okay, there's probably nine that I can name off that, that have decent volumes and are building a good name. And, uh, but if you look, like, how many exchanges are there globally, right? How many OTC desks are there globally? So I think we'll see a lot more lending companies come in and I think the space can support a lot more. So it's just interesting that when something's new, someone always says, well, that other person's doing it or that other company's doing it. It's like, okay, well, let's see it evolve and let's see a lot of people do this because yeah. it makes sense for the market. And, and I think the other thing you're seeing is you're seeing exchanges onboarding the service because this is a great, uh, so it, the, way, the way we see it, this is, uh, you know, the lending and saving products are just a natural evolution of, of the asset class. And sooner than later, I think that you will start seeing these services all offered under one roof uh, because people want to have access to all these tools, right? And so the, the, the best home for the digital asset technically would be the one that allows you to, to access these services. And when you don't want them, just go back to your hardware, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It just, I mean, 
It's the whole, I mean, it sounds like the DeFi dream in and out. Well, <laughs> but on Bitcoin. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and I, I want to say, like on the record, like we're actually out of, for all the talk that goes around, we are the only Bitcoin only lender, uh, by the way. Boss. <laughs> no, you guys got the... Uh, the the support of Francis I've seen on Twitter. So that's yeah, funny. he's uh, he's he was our first and best client. I want to give him a shout out actually to him and the guys at Bull Bitcoin. They've been nothing but great to us, and uh, and we love the the move that they're making. Uh, the fact that they're supporting you as well, and and essentially everything that they're doing for Canadian Bitcoin ecosystem. We're, we're just happy to be there along with them. Yeah, we're very proud to have them on as sponsors here. At TFTC, there. Uh, I mean, Francis just uh, incredible. Uh, ben as well. The whole team over there. Uh, for sure. No, just the whole mentality of. Uh, Bitcoin first. We're gonna wasabi all your coins. We're gonna stave off the government as long and hard as we can, yeah. and and try to support other Bitcoin businesses. Well, uh, yeah, and one thing I wanted to add actually. So as we um, as we go to Latam and and essentially we we start servicing these markets, the people there, not everybody actually is as willing or able even to receive dollar transfers. So um, in fact. What we've done before to some of these guys is we're actually locking down the loan and everything and all the terms are down are done in dollars But we essentially use the Bitcoin rails to send the proceeds of the loan and they essentially convert out in local bitcoins locally And send it to their own bank account or they don't convert right away, but they just keep the, the balance in Bitcoin uh, But increasingly we're, at, we're having people basically ask us if we support stable coins uh, because this is a big use case there Really? Uh, yeah, any in particular? Uh, we've done a lot of research for this. Uh, we've been very methodical about why, uh, you know, as you know, we've been Bitcoin only and we've been, we're very much, that's been very much on purpose because, you know, that's the one we understand and we believe in. Uh, but seeing that these other types of digital assets are now solving problems for people in other places, uh, we want to essentially facilitate that if it helps, right? Like, as, um, no, we were uh, alluding to it in our pre-conversation with conversation with Rao yesterday, and that's what he was saying. He th like he's under the impression that there's going to be, that's what I was said in the podcast. Too. There's two schools of thought, like this Bitcoin adoption happen within a quick five to 10 year period after which it is uh, a reserve system and you build a medium of exchange networks on top of it, whatever and it is the currency or to take longer than that, you have this transitionary period where stable coins and the such fill in the gap. Yeah, but but listen, as a Lat as an as a Latin American, like if uh, in fact it, it, most of the most people there, and just the same way they are here, if you get a windfall of a hundred thousand dollars, and that's like your net worth, um, I I don't think it, it, especially there where people maybe maybe not everybody understands Bitcoin as much, and we're very bullish on it because we spent years learning about Bitcoin. Uh, we're not just putting our careers and our, and our wealth behind this because we just think it's cool, right? Like we've, we've learned, we believe in this, uh, and that takes time. So it's, it's, I would think it's a bit naive to start expecting everybody that gets a windfall now to want to keep their whole balances in Bitcoin. Uh, people just want their wealth not to disappear. Yeah. <laughs> That's the main thing people want. Yeah. And, and largely the dollar solves that. Uh, for most people in, in outside OECD countries. Yeah, so let's uh, let's jump into what's going on in LATAM, like what you guys experience is Venezuelan like expanding down there as a company. Because um, a good example is like Argentina this summer, they had their currency crisis, and I wrote about it in the band a couple of times, like, ah, oh, maybe people will go and use Bitcoin, and then like Argentinian readers reached out, and were like, no, the U.S. dollar is still, still yep. coming down here. Like most, yeah. most people are not in Bitcoin, so what is the scene like down there? Like what is the the attention level like how many people get it if they do get it they're like oh this is what we need this is our solution 
Yeah, I was just going to say, I think, you know, what, I, what we see is just capital controls all over the place, right? So you have uh, local currencies that are failing and a uh, simple example of this. So uh, what we learned in Mexico is uh, Mexicans with U.S. dollar accounts are now getting taxed on an accrual basis as if their U.S. dollars are property. So let's just say I, I bought property taxes on their uh, bank accounts? well capital gains tax. So let's just say I'm you know decently wealthy Mexican and I had a hundred thousand U.S. that I deposited in Miami in a Wells Fargo account, and I bought that when the peso was ten to one USD uh, five five ten years ago, and today it's twenty to one USD. So the Mexican government says that the Mexican government coordinates with the U.S. government. The U.S. government gets Wells Fargo to send all the records game. of the names of the Mexicans with uh, information Just on the you, bank uh, accounts. Touching, touching the uh, thing. I'm sorry. It, yeah, it's like getting some. No, no, it's up top, up top. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's creating like feedback. Yeah, yeah, you're good. I'm sorry for interrupting. Yeah, yeah, no worries. So, yeah, so you have 100,000 U.S. sitting in Miami and you bought that when the peso was 10. Now the peso is 20. So the Mexican government tax authority says, oh, hey, you, 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 you doubled your money. Uh, but they haven't sold the U.S. Sold. <laughs> Sounds funny to say that. But they haven't converted the U.S. dollars back to pesos yet. They're just holding them for protecting their wealth. Now they have to pay peso capital gains tax. So this is another just practical reason for stable coins is... So they get a cut in half anyway. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's so you're up. trying to protect your wealth. And, so, and the other piece is the rationale for stable coins is any incoming wire from our understanding, into a, a bank account is viewed as income. So now you're guilty until proven innocent. You have to say, no, that's not, a, that's not income. That's a loan of an asset being Bitcoin that I already owned. And I'm just taking out a mortgage against that. And so you, you want to avoid the, the banking system because you're, you're being accused of something that's not at all true. And you're spending a lot of time and effort just educating people about something they don't understand. Yeah, Mexico came out thinking about banning Bitcoin, right? Or at least... Yeah, they have the fintech law. The fintech law made things quite complicated. It's... Um, you know, LATAM is, is a bit of a, of a puzzle when it comes to legislation. Um, for example, like to give you an example on the fintech law, the fintech law reads that the Central Bank of Mexico will issue the list of authorized digital assets that the authorized financial institutions can transact in. And this is like, you know, this was passed, um, I believe it was June of last year. To date, the central bank has not authorized a single digital asset. <laughs> and there are active exchanges in Mexico that are working, uh, but it's, it's all gray right now. Uh, a lot of it is gray. And, and, but most of it, what we did, because we do a lot of, do, like we do a full legal analysis before we go to every country. And uh, the result of our analysis was largely that on the buying and selling side, yes, there's a lot of issues for, because most of it is around capital controls. But most countries welcome lending liquidity at non-predatory rates. It actually helps their economies, right? To, to inject liquidity at very healthy rates. And just to give you a, a comparison, a mortgage in Mexico is 14%. Oh, shit. Like credit cards are somewhere in like the 20s, 30s. No, actually, no, that's uh, like car loans are somewhere in the 20s. And, uh, and the same goes like as you go down, but not, it's not only the rates, it's like you don't get the credit. <laughs> Nobody gives it to you. <laughs> That's the biggest problem. You can't get out the loan if you want it. You, you won't get it. You, yeah. won't, you, the, the other really interesting uh, problem that all the, I guess, the Latin countries and many countries where they have currency issues are, are facing is you can't call Bitcoin money because as soon as you do, then you can accept, then, then vendors can accept it. So then it dis displaces local currency. So... You have to, if you call it money, then you can regulate it and you can watch it go through all the, the systems and, and everything, but you can't because when you do, you create a bigger problem. So the governments kind of stay neutral on it 
and then come up with other ways to kind of approach it. But it's the exact opposite problem that, you know, Canada and the U.S. and the rest of, uh, you know, OECD and CDA uh, countries have. Because in there, it's just really trying to make, make sure you're watching capital flows and, you know, to the really person that doesn't understand it, trying to make sure you're, st- you're stopping drug tra- trafficking. I watched dope the other day on netflix i didn't see any bitcoin <laughs> being sent just bills and bills of, just of usd and never bitcoin mentioned but anyways another topic but uh yeah it's just interesting this issue so what we did is we worked with uh Denton's law firm to map out every single latem country and asked you know many different questions what is, how is bitcoin regulated how do you take security against bitcoin uh can we operate a bitcoin savings account uh, what are the rules we have to disclose for loans and lending? And so we went through this. So we actually follow both Canadian regulations and regulations in the country we operate on. So it's 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 duplicity, but it's interesting and important to understand all the different rules. I'm sure you guys have learned a lot. Oh man, yeah, it's been <laughs> well. And then just to go back on the on the you know the use case quote unquote for LATAM, um, yeah, I mean a lot of people like for, I'll give you the example in Venezuela. So Venezuela. Uh, when it was 20, you know, when it was Chavez time, like 2010, 2012, uh, there was strict capital controls. Like it was literally illegal to hold dollars. So, and nobody wanted the, the Bolivar hot potato. Like it was just, a, it, it never worked to hold Bolivares. So what people did when they got the Bolivares and they couldn't get dollars, well, yes, they could get, quote, black market dollars, which are just dollars, <laughs> just not authorized by the government. Is that a different price? Yeah, it's the real price. It's mm-hmm. the actual real price because the only other op- option is the government and they just won't sell it to you. They, yeah. You have to be friends with them. Um, so in essence, you get these Bolivares, you're desperate to get rid of them. Uh, there's no dollars in sight. Um, so then your options become uh, flour, like you want to stockpile flour, you want to stockpile sugar, tires, like non-perishable stuff. People do that and barter out. Uh, then the next one is, hey, I got some Bitcoin, or hey, I got some stable coins, or hey, I got any of these things that can preserve value and get transferred out. And it was Bitcoin way back because it was the only thing available. But I mean, I would say now that if you present people the options between Bitcoins and stable coins, uh, with relatively same ease of use, um, people will, a lot of people will pick stable coins um, just by virtue of being able to not having to deal with the volatility, right? And yeah. they don't understand Bitcoin enough. No, I mean, that would, um, that would sort of confirm what the Argentinian readers that reached out to me, like we prefer the dollar and like they can have a digital dollar. And, and yeah, that. and so we're getting a lot of demand for stable coins. The stable coin that we're going to be onboarding on our platform is DAI. And uh-huh. the, yeah, okay. uh, the reason we're doing that is because we've, we've done thorough research in, in LATAM essentially, which is where the demand is coming from. We've talked to our users. Um, we think they have a solid you know, marketing team down there that is basically you know, doing, like they're at the meetups to have boots on the ground. They're, they're really there trying to explain what they're doing and how it's valuable and how to use it. Um, so that people get what it is uh, and how it works. Our loan, so we're not going to pass the die risk, quote unquote, directly to the user in the sense that everything is still done in dollars. We just use die as a delivery rail and the user can then choose to either spend them, convert them or do whatever they want with them. But essentially these are just easier rails to get them the dollar funds. Are you worried about the immaturity of MakerDAO and, and DAI at this point? Or well, I mean, would you listen, rather have a Bitcoin as collateral in that system? Uh, I, well, the reason we're doing this, uh, one of the reasons we're doing this is that once we effectively do this, we're going to be the only option for you to take an unwrapped Bitcoin in its pure form and get DAI. 
So for the Bitcoin users that want to try that and they don't want to go through the ERC-20 or minting or CDPing anything, they can literally just throw a clean Bitcoin on our vault in Bitco and try some DAI. Interesting. So, but that won't, that Bitcoin won't be collateral in the maker. No, no, no. It will yeah. be sitting cleanly in Bitco yeah. and it has a dollar liability on you, it. You guys take the ETH risk? Uh, no, we don't. Yeah, we're simply uh, taking U.S. dollars or Canadian dollars and exchanging them for DAI okay. and then sending that equivalent U.S. dollars or Canadian to whichever uh, loan they preferred to get it in and using DAI as a payment rail. Interesting. Yeah. And DAI is still, um, I mean, I, I just worry about MakerDAO and DAI uh, just because of Ethereum's uncertain future. Right? I think they got to, I mean, it. it is intriguing if they add more collateral assets, like assets that can mm -hmm. be collateralized, right? Yeah, it is impressive though what, what's happened to the ether price throughout the die life cycle and how it's still right. Yeah, it's been yeah. all the way down, right? Yeah, it's yeah. it's held up. Yeah. Well, yeah, and then the other thing too is that you know, as you think through like what the there are, every every stablecoin has liabilities. I mean, there there are risks to every stablecoin out there. I still think today. Um, however, what I, one of the things I actually like about die is that. Um, as le at least as far as I understand that they're not truly holding any USD reserves in any one bank account, uh, which is a big liability for the other, call it more traditional stable coins in the sense that, uh, you know, that could be seized at any yeah, one point. Didn't tether 800, not billion, 800 million seized earlier this summer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that's what I mean. I mean, there's no perfect solution. There's no perfect answer. We saw a need to deliver stable coins to our users. Uh, we just did a research on what we thought the best way to deliver that, and, and that's what we're going to be executing. And we're also delivering loans in Bitcoin, which is yeah. kind of interesting because you're taking the loan out in dollars, but then we're sending you the Bitcoin in that equivalent dollar amount, and then you can do so, it. So yeah, yeah, you're just using Bitcoin again as a payment rail. So yeah, what a weird world. Yeah. What are we in right now? Like how, well, let's talk about, let's actually, let's focus on LATAM because that's something I'm fascinated about. Um, because I love LATAM. I worked at a company based out of Quito and Cartagena. It was remote. I was working here, but like. Uh, well, no, but uh, you're, you're in every Spanish group, bro. You're <laughs> every chat, any Telegram chat, Marty's there. <laughs> well, because I, I, well, I am genuinely fascinated and genuinely curious about Bitcoin adoption in LATAM because yeah. I think. I mean, that's all the headlines and all the uh, the hopium would lead you to believe that this is a technology that could save uh, a continent that's been, or South America has been plagued by terrible banking and government crises for the last century. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so is that playing out at all? Do you think it could help? Do you think it's too early? Do you think it is helping? Oh, man, I actually... Do you think the, the narrative's overblown? Um Maybe, I mean, I don't know how much time we got left. <laughs> yeah, plenty of time. Let's get into it. Let's get um, seriously, like what is going on down there? I'll, I'll tell you what my beef is. My beef with the whole thing is, and I had a conversation with, uh, with Amir actually uh, recently about this, which is Bitcoin is an amazing tool for saving and letting people be sovereign in a place where there's capital controls and, and essentially allow them to have censorship resistance money. I love, I'll tell you this, like, um, there are now today there's two ATMs in Cucuta. So you remember Cucuta, the border city where Richard Branson had its big concert in February, mm -hmm. all this jazz. So that's the biggest crossing bridge between Venezuela and Colombia. Um, 50,000 people cross that bridge every day. Literally, people, kids to go to school, like it's, it's the biggest crossing in the country. Um, people cross over to Colombia to do groceries and to buy medicine. Um, in the past, 
they would try to cross with dollars and they would try to cross with a little bit of gold. A lot of it would get seized on, along the way by the guards. What's happened recently is that now there's two ATMs just at the end of the bridge and people are crossing the border with little pieces of paper with 12 and 24 words and are getting to that ATM, withdrawing 20 to $40. Bitcoin ATM. Bitcoin ATM. Withdrawing $40 in pesos, buying their stuff and returning back to Venezuela. So the censorship resistance stuff is actually playing out. Like you're seeing it today. I actually have heard of people, this isn't the first time I heard about this. This is the first time that I'm seeing it kind of become mainstream in the sense that there's ATMs there. Mm -hmm. um, I had heard of people crossing with pieces of paper, like it was, it was common. But now it's, it's now it's not something that you hear just randomly from other Bitcoin insiders. It's like everyone is like, oh, what's that ATM? And then 50,000 people are seeing 100 people go into that ATM once they cross. And they're like, what are those guys doing? And they're like, they're just bringing encrypted wealth over. And they're like, what the fuck am I doing with this dollar? <laughs> <laughs> so, and so like that, that piece is happening. What's not happening is essentially... What, what's really happening is all these people that are using Bitcoin are just getting wealthy and getting the frick out. <laughs> but the country's still in shambles. The country's still a disaster. The structural issues of the country are not something that we can solve with Bitcoin. Right? Bitcoin will give someone that appreciates freedom and understands what regime they're under the tools to get the fuck out. But it won't give the people in there, at least right away, a tool to change their government. It's not a panacea. It's not a panacea. Um, it's frustrating because that's where I'm from. Like I've, I've seen Venezuela gone literally down the shitter. It's been three years. I haven't been able to go see my family. Um, well, that's another story, but we can get into that. My brother's mining facility got raided by uh, crook cops. Uh, like this was two years ago. Let's definitely get into that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it, it's really frustrating, right? So well, I'll, I'll tell you my dad, my brother's story, right? So when we started mining in 2014, uh, they started mining. I didn't start mining around maybe early 2015. But when we start mining, I'm, I'm helping them scale. Like I'm going back between Venezuela and Canada and trying to like build uh, bigger facilities there. A lot of people are coming to us saying like, what are you guys doing? We want in, like we really want to learn how to, how to do this. So we're helping a ton of people like set up mines and mines. And with that, people kind of start referring us as like the miners, right? Like in our hometown at least. Uh, so that was, you know, 2015, we helped a ton of people. 2016, we helped a ton of people. 2017, it was really getting crazy. Like every electric outlet in Venezuela had some form of mining <laughs> connected to it. So crazy. Um, and mostly GPU stuff. And essentially 2017 was like peak Bitcoin, peak, peak shit coins, pick everything. And uh, the, the mother of all shit coins gets announced, the Venezuelan Petro. Petro. And the Petro announcement a lot of people didn't actually follow this through. There were some people who like, some people were supporting the Petro, like some of the, call it talking heads in, on Twitter, and I'm not going to get into details, but I was really disappointing to see. But the people that were looking at the Petro from out, the outside view, they had a very twisted opinion of what the Petro was. They thought it was actually, some, a lot of people thought it was an actual good thing, <laughs> which, was, uh, which was like the farthest from truth, right? Uh, it was a... It was, it was a full-blown sham a complete scam and what it actually did was as they were promoting the petro quote-unquote if you look at the press conference and i'll send them to you if you look at the articles that came out by the government you look at the press conferences they would give it was all around mining it was all showing it was all around showing the entire country what a mining computer looked like how much money it made what it sounded like and then essentially in not in in, in not in not in, in different words said this is completely uh, sovereign in the sense that you can go take it from whoever has it 
and just plug your own wallet. And now you're mining their computers. And that essentially gave the unofficial go-ahead to all of, all of essentially the crooked force, which is the Venezuelan Chavismo. police. Yeah, the Chavismo. The Chavismo needs to pay his crooks every year to get them to do things, right? Mm -hmm. uh, in 2016, it was in La Casa. So every time around Christmas, the government would take a private company that had a lot of inventory and would slash it and do a fire sale. And everybody would just line up and everybody had their own Christmas gift. And populism, the, the most pure populism, like populismo puro puro. Mm -hmm. um, when 2017 came, no freaking nobody was dumb enough to bring inventory for Christmas. There was nothing in the country. The country was stocked out. But guess who had brought a lot of things around 2017? Miners. You look at all the import records and it was all this thing called Bitmain. <laughs> <laughs> and so the government said, oh, guess what? I don't have like shoes to give you. I don't have food to give you, my, my crony assholes who are shooting down my protests for me. But guess what I can give you? Dollar printing machines. And this is where they are. And this is how they look like. And feel free to go grab them. Right? And so, so they sent like an angry mob after miners. And so they did. Uh, and they started coming at the mining facilities dressed as like utility people, dressed as like, you know, whatever. And then suddenly they were just like, no, we're just going to, you know, we want money. Like, which is more money? And like, this wasn't what happened to my brother. My brother's case was a little bit more drastic. My brother, they just literally kicked down the door at like 4 p.m. on a Tuesday and uh, seized all of the equipment and then started calling us saying that they needed 15K and the machines to not throw them in jail. What? And so we were like, okay, hold on, what? <laughs> uh, we're not breaking laws, bro. Like, here's our import records. Here's our hydro bills. Like, here's everything that we've been paying. Like, here's internet. Like, what do you want to see? Right? Like, we got it. And they're like, nope, this is an illegal activity. And we're like, well, the president is just on TV saying how it's legal. <laughs> so what do you mean? And they're like, no, it's actually legal, and you're going to get arrested if you, if you keep this, if you keep this up, right? If you keep, like, not wanting to pay. And we're like, okay. So, like, we do what everyone does in Venezuela. We hang up the phone, and we start calling people higher up, higher up, higher up, higher up, so, so we could shut down the problem, right? Higher up, higher up, higher up. This is coming from higher up. This is coming from higher up. There's nothing we can do. 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 Guys keep calling, calling, calling. They start, like, naming my brother's kids where they go to school, like, all this stuff. And so it's like, now it's like, I think it's like 11 p.m. on Friday. All of us were out of the country. My brother was the only person in the country. And the decision was made that he was just going to take a convoy to the border and cross and get the fuck out. Uh, and that's what he did. I paid for his hotel in Cucuta with my credit card in Canada. Um, he drove with a couple of friends that were kind enough to kind of take a few cars down with him to the border. Uh, we went to the border that had like no internet, no radio communications to make sure that there was no... It was, it was impossible for the to get it done. Yeah. Uh, and then since then, we've actually then, the case has been cleared. Uh, but that's just an example. That happened to a lot of miners, and most of them paid. Most of them actually paid and stayed. So fucked up. Yeah, man. Yeah, we'll, we'll send you the, the article on it after, but yeah. uh, it looks exactly like a, a, a staged cocaine bust where you have two armed guards at either side. The, and yeah, shotguns. A bit main miners. That's not German in Shepherd in the corner, too. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, so that, that, you know, I think that was a bit of, again, another blessing in disguise. Well, does this, does this worry uh, you about, does this worry you about Bitcoin's long-term security in the long, long run? Like, do you think if states were to act like Venezuela across the board that Bitcoin sort of wouldn't work at all? Or? I'll tell you one thing that we can't be naive about. Um, one of the biggest beneficiaries of Bitcoin's censorship resistance is bad state actors right now. 
They still have the ability to print all the fiat they want, and they have the ability to infiltrate all the P2P markets they want. And they're doing it. This is happening in Venezuela every day. Like confiscating miners, the government confiscating miners using it to mine Bitcoin, then holding Bitcoin? Or? They do that. That's one arm. But the other one is, hey, uh, uh, Raul, why don't you go print another $2 billion, go to local Bitcoins, soak the whole thing up, and get us Bitcoin for the government? Yeah. Really? Or even the fact that they oh, have the, uh, this is the official uh, uh, remittance is through the government website yeah. in Venezuela. So now they've started overpaying for Bitcoin. So like, you can get more bolivares for your Bitcoin through the government's exchange than you can through local Bitcoins. Is anybody converting their Bitcoin into bolivares? Like Unfortunately, some people don't have... I don't want to say this without... I don't want to sound rude, but like a lot of people... The bolivar is still the, the way to pay for a lot of things, a lot yeah, of services. They uh, need to. The, the government forces a lot of big companies to take bolivares, so like legally it's still the, what you need. Um, and yeah, I mean, some people still do. Uh, and in fact, like, for, for example, like a lot of those cases is what's very common in Venezuela is you have like two or three kids that went abroad and they send each parent like a couple hundred bucks every month and they can get a, an extra 10% if they do it through Bitcoin. And so they do it. But, but the other piece that's like, we have, to, we have to know that this is happening. We can't mm -hmm. just be, turn a blind eye to the fact that governments like Venezuela are printing fiat and then taking it through their testaferros. Testaferros is a Spanish word for, hey, I'm a sanctioned individual, They're Marty. Speculative attacking themselves. Yeah, you're like, I'm a sanctioned individual, Marty, but you are not. Here's $2 million. Go buy Bitcoin on P2P market and send it to my wallet. Keep, keep 20%. That's happening. It happens every day. Just like, fucking... Venezuelan government is stacking Bitcoin... Essentially, to circumvent individual every section. And individual, individual politicians within the government? Or? It, 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 they're basically just... So it, it, I mean, it's hard to explain because they're so expensive. You, you, you're just saying that they're overpaying. So Mauricio is not a sanctioned individual. I am. So I just say, hey, Mauricio, can you exchange this Bitcoin for me yeah. in your name? I'll give you 10% yeah. back. Yeah. So, exactly. yeah, and so, so if you want like an actual full breakdown, is okay, central bank prints bolivares. Central bank can't actually do a transaction on local Bitcoins. So central banks will go and talk to, you know, I don't know, the secretary of whatever, somebody that works in any, just pick one person that their whole family, they, they know where they live, they know where they are, they have that person by the balls, and they say, use your name to go on local Bitcoins and make this transaction, and you're going to send that Bitcoin to this wallet address. And it looks like a normal P2P transaction. Uh, but in fact, it's going to their wallet and they're using it to circumvent all the U.S. Treasury sanctions. Ah, to buy shit for the country? Of course. From like... Russia. Russia? China. What, what are they buying? Oil or... or no, that was a dumb, dumb fucking comment. They're not... No, no need no. to buy oil. What are they buying? Like, no, so from Russia, they're bringing like... Uh, I, I want to say like from the biggest... And there's no oil in Russia. They're yeah. giving out. Food, food there's food no supplies. oil in Russia. Like China. diapers and like, you know, things yeah. like that. Like formula, diapers, like yeah. pharmacy items, food. So there's food. things that they promised as a, as a welfare. What would you... What would you... Uh, what do we label this as? Because it's not the black market because it's... The brown is it like because it's like technically it's supposed to be the white market, but it's just yeah. that the turn into the brown. I mean, yeah. yeah. Well, so what market. you see, yeah. what you see in the imbalance is that, and, and this is interesting because this, this is happening in several countries. So in Venezuela, Bitcoin trades at a premium, like a dollar worth of Bitcoin trades at a premium to a real dollar, because of the censorship resistance aspect of it. There's people overpay for Bitcoin than the dollar, um, and. In Colombia, so it's actually, there's, a, there's more people wanting Bitcoin than people that were willing to sell it in Venezuela. 
In Colombia, you're seeing the complete opposite because the people take that Bitcoin in Venezuela, cross the border and dump it in Colombia for pesos so they can get goods. So when, while Venezuela has an artificially high Bitcoin price, Colombia has an artificially low Bitcoin price. So you have basically our runners running across the border with those numbers trying to get... Así mismo. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, and actually the best ARB in that situation is Colombia, US, right? Like you pick it up, you sell it at a par, you come back, you pick it up at this discount, you sell it at a par. And as long as you have two good banking accounts, you can keep doing this. Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, fuck, man. Are you... I mean... What it, what is the future of Venezuela in your mind? Like, what is happening? Is there, like, <laughs> I, I asked Mauricio this today as we were, as we were walking around the city, yeah. and I said, uh, "Okay, give me the update today, and then break it down for me in every five year increments what you think is going to happen over the next twenty five years." <laughs> yeah. And uh, it went on for a while. <laughs> I don't know if we got to a final. It's a hard question, man, because like really nobody knows, right? right. Like, well, I guess the best question to ask to start this train of thought is how long? Like, did you think it would last this long? I'll give, you, I'll give you some cool stories. Um, when Chavez won the election, most people, including my family, used to think that Chavez was going to be just a few years. Like, he was just going to get... Uh, they were going to impeach him, like, halfway through. And essentially, <laughs> they, you know, they were, gonna, they were going for a two-year vacation in Miami, and they were going to be able to go back to Venezuela, and everything was cool. Um, so a lot of people actually just thought this was a passing issue. Um, what really scared me is when Chavez died and these guys were able to essentially steal the very next election. Um, that, that was really scary to me because I just saw how, how really how corrupt everything was. And the other thing that was to me almost like very hard to believe was that there were still even like humans willing to vote for this party. Um, which they do because people, and then what the scary part is that the Venezuelan society has been just decimated over the last 30 years and there are no moral values in that country. Like right now, the moral values in Venezuela is like you do what you do to get your free box of food. That's not values you build a really great country on. And what scares me is what's happening in Argentina today. Right, you, know, you had the Kirchner's leave, you have Mauricio Macri come in, which is arguably like the guy you want, right? Um, in Argentina, Chavismo wasn't around for so long, so arguably it was a somewhat easier problem to fix. And Macri just put on a CEPO, like he just put on a currency control. I, knowing what I know and seeing what I've seen in that time, I know that must have been the hardest fucking decision ever for that guy to put in a currency control. Well, wasn't that because he lost the midterm election, right? To there, so Kirchner was, Kirchner was reading high on the polls. And that, like, again, that to me is really scary because I see as... Okay, maybe, maybe we can do an analogy that, that, makes the, that puts the fear of God that I have in other people. I see socialism as like the, the social welfare equivalent of quantitative easing. Like quantitative easing is like once you start it down that path, can't you can't unwind it because you can't take back social services without having an uproar. So I'll give you a perfect example in Venezuela. Guess how much I need to pay in Venezuela to fill a tank of my V8 Grand Cherokee Jeep like the, one of the biggest gas tanks in the world. Like, how much do you think that cost in Venezuela? U.S. dollar terms? Yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, U.S. gas prices today would be like $45, $50. Okay. In Venezuela, in Venezuela, I would have to break a U.S. penny into a quarter of what it is. <laughs> in that's fact, how much oil, yeah, that's why I felt so stupid. I was like, you guys are importing oil. It's, it's so <laughs> ridiculous. It's so ridiculous right now that people aren't even giving you change at the gas station. They just fill you up and you can go. 
It's like and you can just tip them something. It's like you're in the middle of Iraq and you can just like, like war dogs. Like it's more work for them to create change for your bill because they're all now way higher than what you need to pay than for them to just give you the gas. <laughs> I mean, it's a shame it's a socialist country because this is a Bitcoin miner's wet dream. Well, but and that's <laughs> and that's the thing. Like in Venezuela, so a lot of people are there you know, living in kind of like Mad Max world, they have some miners sitting around and they're literally carrying around like Smith and Weston's mm -hmm. and like paying off cops and guards every time they come. And that's like, that's, that's one way to do it. Um, you know, I, I certainly wouldn't want that. I don't think that's like sustainable or, or great, but that brings me back to the problem that we were talking about earlier. Like if everyone's behaving that way and if every, every attempt of curbing things gets corrupted somehow sure. because people keep wanting free shit, the same thing that's happening in Argentina. Like, you had a, 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 a two-term president in the Kirchner's that just gave out free stuff brought to you by Chavez. Uh, and now they went away, and you had Macri come in with, you know, IMF, the whole thing. Like, we're gonna, we have a great restructuring program. But, hey, guess what? You got to work. And then you got another guy on the back in the seat being like, hey, guys, in six years, I'll come back, and you don't got to work. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, what is going on? So what do you, you know what I mean? Like, it's inevitable that you're going to have a bunch of people being like, oh, fuck this guy. I don't want to work. And I don't know. I think it's a slippery slope. Like, how do you undo that? You know, like, how do you, how do you sell capitalism when you have a guy that's like basically telling lies allowed to run? Well, that's the thing that fascinates me. Like, how do people not realize this yet? Like, uh, how, how much strife do they have to go through before they're like all right this obviously isn't working it's, so does personal the sense of personal responsibility get numbed so much that it's hard to sort of shock people back into it or i i think what poisoned the feedback loop of venezuelans was the fact that chavez came in in 98 chavez came in in 98 with dollar at, i think it was 14 dollars a barrel 2002 oil was at like 60 chavez never updated the budget so what started happening is that you had a communist president start seizing private enterprises, start shutting down and reforming all the companies that were working, and all of a sudden people are doing better. And people are like, oh my God, communism is the solution to all of our problems. It was a correlation, not causation problem, right? Absolutely. So and gas so, prices are going up. Correct. And so what happens is Chavez is now giving everybody free things. So in about 2003, I think Chavez gave every Venezuelan the right to go get a credit card preloaded with 5,000 bucks to travel. Who was telling me this? Dude, and Some, it was I don't know if it was Alejandro Machado or... Yeah, Ali, Ali, Ali is a good friend. No, it was, sure. it was Eduardo Medina actually told me Oh, Eduardo, Eduardo. Yeah, yeah, I've had a couple of chats with him too. But, but essentially, this the, the preloaded card became like a thing. And now all of a sudden, so like you had... You know, Venezuela was a place where you had a lot of like factory workers or people that worked at your home. Like, you know, most wealthy families had like two or three people that worked at their homes. And all of a sudden, nobody was doing, nobody was basically housekeeping. Everybody had quit. All the delivery guys had quit. They were like, too good to work. I'm sorry. I'm going to Peru. And <laughs> <laughs> so Everyone's coming back with I love New York t-shirts. Exactly. Exactly. You'd have people being like mowing the lawn, being like, visit Peru. Like, well, like you know, my son went to Milan and got me this crappy shirt. And it was like, you know, <laughs> you know it's like, and you're seeing this and you're like, oh my God, this is going to head off. You know, like how, like, <laughs> I mean, but it's, it's, it's a great, I don't want to say case type. It's like the herd mentality, like, mm -hmm. like thinking today, like if Donald Trump starts handing out $1,500 vouchers for people to go travel, it's like, wait, wait, what's going on here? Like completely. But 
what uh, and it's it's fascinating because again like i said like people still want communism and, and socialism and these and some people it's not all obviously you are a venezuelan who's not who wants capitalism but it is uh just just from a purely psychological observational perspective it's like what what drives people to to keep coming back for more punishment well a lot of it is the narrative and maybe we can go this this might be a nice segue into why i think stable coins can really help progress in general so one of the things that excited me about libra for example and i like let's maybe get into like the libra type developments what i saw in venezuela when when chavez outlawed the dollar was that the way they justify, the narrative they use to justify the move is they go to the public and they say, this only affects very rich people that can afford dollars and traveling and buying things on Amazon. Do you, Miguel, have dollars in your day-to-day life? No, señor presidente, yo no uso dólares. And then it's like, okay, great, Miguel. So how is my ban going to affect you? And it's like, oh, you're totally right, Mr. President. I'm right. No, you're right. I don't use dollars in my day-to-day life, blah, blah, blah. Like, it's fine. It's for the rich people. Fuck the rich people. Right? And they're like, great, just put in your currency control. And then, so what happens is the guys that run the businesses are like, okay, well, I can't get dollars to restock my inventory. I have to go to the black market. So when I used to be able to buy this Coke for 10 bolivares, now this Coke is 40 bolivares. And the Coke goes back on the shelf at 40 bolivares. So people are like, oh my God, the Coke is 40 bolivares. But they don't associate that with the currency control. What they get mad and the government goes on TV and says, We've noticed that some crook capitalism, capitalists are raising the prices on our people's food. And we're going to start offering that regulated Coke through our things and blah, blah, blah. And now, again, they, turn, they spin this. Spin zone, baby. And so what, what keeps happening is ignorance is bliss, right? Like ignorance. So these people are like, oh, my dollar doesn't affect me. It's the crook capitalist, blah, blah, blah. When you start giving these people dollar-like vehicles in Facebook and they all of a sudden start paying their, I don't know, Farmville or Netflix with stable coins, and they're now starting to use these Libras every day, and now the government comes back and says, oh, the dollar is just for rich people. They're going to go back and say, yeah, cool, as long as I can keep my Libra, that's fine. They're like, no, actually, your Libra's a dollar. And I was like, okay, well, but I'm not rich, and I'm using my Libra, so why the fuck are you going to take it away? (laughs) And you're seeing this in in Argentina right now. So Argentina, to my knowledge, is the first CEPO, or currency control, that actually uh, catches Bitcoin and stable coins. It's like the V1 of the CEPO had no, nothing to do with Bitcoin, but then people were like, okay, well, if the dollar is capped, let's just keep buying Bitcoin. And then the guy, the government was like, okay, crap. Like, I guess we have to cap Bitcoin too. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. Bitcoin is capped uh, in To my well? knowledge, and I'd like to confirm better, like, please, somebody, if somebody's from Argentina and has more detailed information on this, I invite them to please reach out. But my understanding is that there's a limit now on Bitcoin too, because Bitcoin is a way to take capital out. Yeah, because the, uh, well, I know the U.S. dollar amount is like $10,000 a month you're right. allowed to right. purchase, right? And there are some platforms that are operating in Argentina, like Bitcoin brokerages and Bitcoin buying exchanges, where this is affecting their ability to take on U.S. dollar deposits. This is affecting their ability to process transactions for Argentinians. So this is a really unique thing, and I think this is going to keep happening. But the issue is that the governments are running out of tools, essentially, because people are now starting to use these things for day-to-day lives. When does everybody throw their fucking hands up and just say, fuck you? Like, I just can't wait till we talk about Canada. You think uh, Venezuela is crazy. Wait till we talk about Canada. It's fucking wild up there. <laughs> what is going on with Canada? <laughs> we got an election coming up yeah. on the 21st of October. Ooh, there, there was some, there was some great election fodder for, for your 
election today. Your it president. The, the blackface. Uh, the blackface. Yeah. yeah. That's, uh, That'll come and get you. Uh, Halloween costume. They were <laughs> keeping that picture in the books for a timely release. Very timely release. Yeah. So. That was the, uh, that's the, the puncher and the pussy in this election cycle <laughs> exactly. for the Canadians. <laughs> Completely. That's the Canadian equivalent. Grab her by this the pussy. This Halloween costume is not appropriate. <laughs> Uh, grab her by the pussy, not punch her. The yeah, that's a, completely. That's definitely the Canadian uh, version of that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what? Uh, yeah, what? Is, what is the Canadian Bitcoin scene like? It's uh, it's actually awesome, actually. Toronto. I mean, I've been yeah. to Montreal. I know Montreal as well. I, I've never yeah. been to Toronto though. Uh, so is, I guess like the. You and know, thank you. I'm sorry, yeah. I cannot come. Uh, and early in June to, to the game. I'm yeah, saying. for you the record, a- Marty was invited to a playoff Raptors game. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember the exact conflict, but uh, they are the NBA champions. Congrats. Congrats. <laughs> I, think, uh, I think I was too salty after Ka- Kawhi uh, dropped that shot. Ah. <laughs> we still love you, Kawhi. <laughs> hey, you got yeah. you that ring. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, man. Yeah, the, awesome. yeah the, I mean, the, the tech scene in Toronto and really Montreal, Vancouver, everywhere is, is amazing. Like, amazing uh, software development talent. Uh, a lot of Bitcoin development uh, happening in, uh, in Toronto as well. Uh, and obviously all of Canada and then the mining scene, right, given the cost of power. So yeah. Uh, just, yeah, overall. We, we got a big crew up there, and it keeps getting bigger and better. Uh, you know, like the bull Bitcoin guys are doing great things. We got Blockstream out in the West End. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, we're there. <laughs> but, uh, no, it's getting big. And, like, there's guys like NVK, like CoinKite, like those guys are massive. Uh, Rodolfo is like, you know, he's become a good friend of ours. Uh, yeah, he's, there's just a you know a great number. I, I know, I'm not going to mention any more because I don't want to dox anybody. But but it's it's a huge community. Like we get together almost every every two weeks to something for stake, and it's pretty fun. Yeah, and there's it's crazy that half your teams from Latin America too. Mm-hmm. So there's Canada like a big um, big desk. I mean, obviously U.S. is as well, but Toronto. Um, it's it's not scene or it's not necessarily like a Miami like Miami como Venezuela like Miami is like you're you never left Caracas right but but Toronto has become uh, Toronto is a hugely multicultural city but I think what strikes a chord with Latin users is that we grew up around inflation right and it's so like one of our one of our uh, main and awesome devs is from Cuba uh, and so fuck man we know authoritarianism like no other uh, when when we see Bitcoin like we get it <laughs> like there's not too much to explain. Yeah. Uh, so I think that and the fact that we were very much like we like to consider ourselves like very purposeful like when we developed this like we really wanted to solve the problem like we didn't just want to go make some money like we wanted to to do this we wanted to let make sure that they felt comfortable knowing where their Bitcoin was that they could process loans in an amount that wasn't going to be burdensome to them um, that we would we'd be able to answer the questions in their language that the contract was in their language that they could send it to their lawyer for review without spending any extra you know additional dollars it was very much thought out like how we could get to them uh, and I think people see that I mean I think it comes through in our work mm-hmm. no, you guys are extremely passionate um, and no, I, I'm just from speaking to you, knowing you over la- I mean, getting to know you over the last twelve to 10, 10 to twelve months. Like you, you're in it for the, you're down for the cause. Like you're pure. I appreciate and that's what. That, uh, yeah. And again, like all the, the again going back to like Twitter and the people that like the shit on like the lending companies. Like I, again, everybody I've met at these companies, they, they're not out to go get money. Like like you said, you're you're mission driven. You want to make this happen. Yeah, and listen, there are risks, right? Like and starting by the risks that we took. Like we we have our own like our careers, our reputation, our capital, everything is on the line with this. Like we 
we can't fail. <laughs> uh, we don't want to fail, uh, right? And, and I think that that's really, we, we want to serve a role and we want to mitigate those risks and be as transparent and honest with our people about the risks, right? Like we don't want to hide anything. We, we, one of the beautiful things about blockchain is the fact that everyone can verify everything. And the second you lie to someone, they'll know. Uh, so we, we want people to question us. We want people to ask us the hard questions. And we, 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 if we're not able to answer it, you shouldn't do business with us. Right. No, thank you for, I mean, I don't think my questions were too hard, but you know, no, they're <laughs> not hard, but like more uncomfortable. It's like, Hey, no, you, but guys are, you guys are custodians, right? Like people are like, are you going to, that's the question. Number one, people have questions of mine. Are you going to lose my money? That's fair. Course, like yeah, where, right? where is yeah. my money? Like, yeah. what are yeah. you doing with it? Yeah, uh, and I think, you know, we have visions of like, we want to build an ecosystem, right? So it, it, lending was the first, uh, you know, product to get out of the gate. And then we had the savings account. Now we have the buy two X product and we want to do a whole bunch of other pieces that will all fit together. So it's like, we see this as evolution and we want to, we want to build more and more trust over time. So like, I think it's, it's interesting because the whole concept of Bitcoin came from the lack of trust, but yet everyone wants to work with people they know and like because they want to trust them. And so the human aspect of it is probably the most important piece. Like how do people find out about Bitcoin anywhere? It's because they learned about it likely from someone that they trust and someone that they like. And so that's how it has to propagate. And we hope that's the same for companies that people want to work with. Yeah. yeah. And so let's get heady here. Let's get cosmic. We're what are we drinking here, by the way? Let's, uh, drinking, let's introduce the drink. We're drinking Ron Diplomatico. Ron Diplomatico Mantuano, para los venezolanos that are listening. No, 1959. I was, for the record, looking for Cacique 500, but I couldn't get it. That's my favorite rum. This is a very good one. It's probably it's my delicious. favorite. Gracias. Uh, from the Venezuelan community. <laughs> it's <laughs> got like a smoky taste to it. It does. Yeah, it does. Uh, this is uh, one of the best things to come out of Venezuela, actually. Uh, we have really good rum. We used to have really great coffee, uh, but... Fuck, like everything's been decimated now. Um, these guys, Diplomaticos, uh, I don't know, Diplomaticos Santa Teresa, no. There's one of the rum makers that's like buddy-buddy with the government that I'm not really a big fan Fond of. of. But, but in fairness, anyone that is being able to export today, it's probably not in bad terms with them. So Okay, interesting. So, but anyway, it's still delicious. It is delicious. <laughs> um, but again, before... Por favor. Yo también. But no, that's like as we refill our drinks here and get heady. Like, how do you see? Again, we were talking about like stable coins might be transitionary, but I'm thinking socially. Like, how socially do we get people to to wake up? Like, hey, stop depending on your goddamn government for money, in particular. Um, and this will give you more freedom. Um, Bitcoin being this. Well, I wish I could tell you that Venezuelans got into Bitcoin because they figured it out. But that's not why they got it. And that's largely not why most people get into it. it, it they get into it because of necessity. It's like, like I said, it's like they got a bunch of oliores and there was just flour and tires. And there was just this Bitcoin thing. And now they're like, okay, well, I'll, it's easier than store flour, right? So I'll try Bitcoin. They tried it. They realized how convenient it was. They realized that it solved the problem. And they kept using it. I'll give you an example as a Venezuelan. A lot of people say, oh, why don't Venezuelans just use dollars? Can you just, can you just use dollars, bro? And I'm like, <laughs> okay. I'm like, I'm like, listen, bro. <laughs> if I could, I fucking would have them, of course. But like, what are your options when you're in Venezuela? You either have a bill that could be counterfeit. So either you have 
literally that pen. So everybody in Minnesota right now has like, you know, those little pens. Yeah, the, the markers the, yeah. at the bodegas. So you have a marker or your little lamps. So you either walk around with those. And in Minnesota now, like a $20 bill with a, with a marker on it, like a, with a mark on it, it trades at a discount because I don't like marks on my bills. So it's okay. So cash is pretty much out of the question because it's very hard to kind of. So some dickhead could just go in with a Sharpie and devalue somebody's yeah, cash. Like, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And then the other piece is like, okay, no, no worries. I'm just going to get on a plane to Panama and open an account and I'll just wire my dollars. And so I'll give you an example of how ridiculous that shit gets as you're, when you're a Venezuelan. Uh, my dad, uh, I think this was 2017 or 2000. Actually, this was pre-Bitcoin, so maybe maybe 2013 or maybe like early 20 to 2014. My um, one of my family members needed to have an operation. She was getting an operation at the Mayo Clinic. Uh, I think it was the Mayo Clinic, some some big clinic in the U.S., like very known clinic. And my dad was gonna pay for the operation. He had the funds in a Panama bank account through, under the company. But he's like, okay, well, I need to help pay the operation. I can't really send it to my personal account. I'm just going to do a wire straight from my company to the hospital and just pay it out. It took us two months. Two months? Two months. They asked us for receipts. They asked us for doctor's letters. They asked us for any fucking Which thing. Which side is transaction? Sent. The U.S. Huh? banks or the... There was the Panama side, essentially, to, to send out the dollars. Okay. Um, and, I mean, it's... It's your fucking money, man. <laughs> and, and, and in fact, like I see a post, this happens to many Venezuelans. Like I've gotten, I've, my brother has How gotten- How frustrating is dude, that? Dude, and, and so what happens is they're like, oh, no worries, we're just gonna mail you a check to your registered address. Bro, where the fuck am I gonna deposit it? <laughs> like, where, where am I gonna get? So the, the dollar piece is, 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 the dollar system is broken for a Latin user because they just can't move them around. Like they, it's hard for them to access them, it's hard for them to move them around. And even if they have them and they were lucky enough to get a bank account, they're still at the mercy of some asshole somewhere that has no fucking clue like who this person is and what they're really using it for. So it sounds like Swift is a terrible money transfer system here, right? Well. Because that's, well, and then we're talking about like Bitcoin and stable coins, like they cannot, cannot like let's get into that. Like yeah. in your experience, has that ever been stopped? No. I, I, I have, and that's the thing, like, and that's like, even though as much as we shit on Ethereum and stuff like that, die, is there a central, there's not, it's not Coinbase, USDC, what is it? USDC? Yeah, USDC. It's not USDC where Coinbase can come in and be like, you can't do this. Right. So. Yeah. I think the one risk that stable coins have is a redemption risk. So the moment that someone tries to convert back to dollars and that person's KYC doesn't work, then that stable coin is infungible. And then you have a, a, a big issue with that. And so it's not viewed as money there. So I think there, there's some risk that we haven't seen yet that I think may evolve. And that's you know, actually doesn't exist with DAI, which is kind of interesting there, but uh, in, the, in the centralized stable coins, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so to your point about like, how do you wake these people up? I think it's just, sadly, it's a matter of time, right? Like it's, it's it, people have to get burnt uh, I mean, that's just the quickest way to learn is just to lose money. And I love this quote that people have. I forget how, who exactly did it, but Bitcoin's not about getting rich quick. It's about getting poor slow. <laughs> so, so it's like these people are getting poor really fast. <laughs> so the second they learn that they can get poor at a lower rate, uh, I think there's going to be, a, 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 honestly, like it's going to be like a no-brainer switch. Um, well no, but I, th I think that, I mean, that's, that was my learning curve. I got in to get rich quick and learn that you're going to get rich slow. I don't think you're going to get poor slow. I think you're going to get rich slow. Yeah. 
You're going to get rich well, slow over time. If you develop that low time preference, let's pump the memes here. Um, <laughs> Stack sats. <laughs> <laughs> but no, you do have to get burnt. Like, I am a strong believer in that as well. But as a romantic too, it's like, how can we help me help people from not getting burnt? Right. For sure. Like, is there, well, one is there like, is there a threshold at which so many people have seen so many others get burnt that they sort of learn like, all right, maybe I should just do this. Here's, here's our, like, I guess one version of it is that I try to keep people or whenever somebody comes and asks me about digital assets or whatever, like I, I try to steer them away from anything that's not Bitcoin mm -hmm. uh, because I think that there's just enough to manage trying just to learn about Bitcoin alone. And there's just a lot of, I, wouldn't, I don't want to say misinformation, but perhaps biased information around these other projects because there's just a lot of people that have something to gain from it. I'm not saying that some people don't have something to gain from Bitcoin, but it's just a broader, older, more, I would say, like uh, unbiased community just because there's just no real people you can point fingers to. Yeah. Uh, and I think it, it kind of goes in order, right? The first is just basically awareness. Like in, in the Uber over to your place here, uh, our driver was from Sudan. He moved to New York nine years ago, and he didn't know what Bitcoin was. I was shocked. Like I would have thought someone that comes from an area without a, likely a stable he currency. Didn't know what he Bitcoin didn't know what it was. was. So I don't know. It's interesting. Like I think there is. It's still quite insular into people. People may have heard the name. They couldn't tell you at all about it. Uh, so I think that has to start. And then the second piece is providing a useful need to you. It has to solve a problem. There has to be a reason for you to switch. And it has to be easy for you to switch or get into it. And so kind of going in that direction. And so I think yeah. we're still working on the fringes of the first two. Yeah. And then the, the other thing that helps is just like an astronomic rise, right? Like yeah. the, the 2017. That's a, the easy, easy way to build yeah. awareness. Like the, the, that, that was so, yeah. the, the, the FOMO is the best way yeah. to get Like the it, 2017 uh, was yeah. like the first time I would think a Bitcoin rally was kind of heard around the world, right? Like. Yeah. Definitely the rallies before then were not as... Well, that was as, uh, as somebody who, who uh, gained their chops in the 2013-2014 bubble um, and had sort of... the And you freaks out there, the bear market of 2014, 2015, 2016 was treacherous. It was pretty yep. terrible. But living through that and then seeing 2017, uh, that bubble, like that... Like, I wasn't as, I was like, holy crap, I can't believe it's, like, this high right now. But I was like, ah, like, Bitcoin does this, I expect it. But uh, that being the second bull market I had been a part of and, like, sitting in the middle of a room watching a bunch of people go through it the first time, I was like, oh, this is what I looked like five years ago. But right. <laughs> and, and so I think in Venezuela, so there, sure? there, there was a lot of, like, there was a lot of disillusionment in Venezuela when Bitcoin crashed. A lot. Because... Miners weren't making as much. People had lost a lot of their money they thought they had earned. Not, not, not a lot of people were trading it. Most people were buying and holding it. And when it came down, people were like huddling down with the ship, you know, and they just, their wealth went right back down with it. And, you know, I, I held through a lot of the bear market and I'm, I'm happy. Hand up as well. <laughs> but, but again, it's, I'm, I have a very high conviction on Bitcoin. I understand why it was going down. At least I thought I reasoned in my head. I kind of knew why it was going down. For, but for the people that were, you know, had bought it in June and then had seen all their earnings be erased, they just felt like they got duped. Right. You know, and, and so it, understandably there was a lot of frustration. Most people actually don't keep peeling the onion layers and get to what Bitcoin really is. They're just like, I just, oh, great. Now I can preserve my wealth. And hey, guess what? Bitcoin was the first time a lot of people in that time saw something appreciated in dollar terms. 
Like most people don't see things oh, appreciated yeah. in dollar terms. Like it, most people in that time don't dive into that. What do you mean by that? Like what, okay, so what, are they, what do Venezuelans see in dollar terms? Usually? So for example, like the top of mountain in Venezuela, if you're like a really wealthy guy in Venezuela, most of your stuff's in dollars and a bank account in Wells Fargo, literally plain dollars. Like the sophisticated investors. And by this, I mean, probably like 1% of the population says I'll buy some real estate in the U S and perhaps like, even a half of that will go as far as taking U.S. equity, like right, and going and participating in the U.S. stock market. Largely, the populations of you know south of Texas, nobody participates in the local stock markets. Um, most of the stock markets are, are gamed in, in some sort of bullshit, corrupt way, like everything else is. And so most people just say, okay, like the top of the mountain for a lot of people is just dollars that don't quote unquote devalue, right? Mm. And and so the, so for example, like devaluation is is actually very it fucks with your head. So like, I remember in Venezuela growing up, people would tell me like, hey man, Venezuela is a great country. I'll buy a truck, I'll drive it for five years and I'll sell it for more than what I bought it for. I'm a genius. People were thinking about that with trucks? Dude, but they were thinking about it in Bolivar terms. Like if you ah. dollarize the purchase and you dollarize the sale, you lost money, but people didn't even go that far. They were just like, I made more Bolivares. And it was like, Okay, and that, so it fucks with your head because the head, the top line is growing. They don't get the they don't get the purging powers decreasing. Correct, at the same because time. it takes a, a different mindset. Like you have to really dig deep and see what monetary policy. How much are these guys printing? Are they debasing my savings capital? That people don't get that far. Most people don't. No, well, uh, I think two of the first ten episodes of Tales from the Crypt were. One was a Santi Siri from Argentina and his story. No way. Yeah. His story of like his personal experience of coming home from school and his mother getting paid and immediately running to the grocery store and buying as much like groceries as possible before the um, peso got devalued there. Like that was like, what the fuck? Like, like the psyche of that, like, okay, I got paid. Like, Matt, like, I get paid, and I'm like, all right, cool, I got paid. Like, I woke up, checked my bank account, I'm paid. I like, run. Like, having, like, yeah, like, thinking of being in the psychology of, oh, I got paid, like, let's go buy as much yeah. store value type shit that we yeah. can. And then uh, the second, I don't know if it's first, I'll say first 20 with confidence, with 100% confidence, first 20 episodes, Zah, um, he was a coworker at uh, Barstool from Zimbabwe, and he described uh, their hyperinflationary situation. It was very similar to what happened in Venezuela. Like uh, Mugabe came in and was it Mugabe. I think so. Zimbabwe. Yeah, yeah. yeah it was I Mugabe. Think it was. Yeah, he came it was. in, kicked out all the farmers, the productive farmers, and then that led to uh, the brain drain. Like all the engineers, all the oil engineers, and stuff like that left the country, and yep. they ended up. And they, he paid for high school with cattle. Like yeah, that's that, and then that's the. Well, brain drain is a whole probably topic for a brand new show, but that's one. Let's get into it. Yeah. Like well, the brain drain that's happened in Venezuela is just. I was going to say, like, I, I think the opportunity that uh, the Bitcoin has, though, is if, if you look at the world right now, like the whole developing world is getting richer a lot quicker than they were in the past. And, you know, if you excuse the, the 1% in the OECD, OECD countries that are continuing to get richer and richer, uh, that isn't as happening as fast here. So I think what isn't catching up is. There's not savings alternatives for someone in, in like, let, let's exclude Venezuela, for example, because of the situation, but let's pick a market like, uh, let's say Brazil, right? So uh, you have a population that is increasing wealth and then, but you don't have a stable stock market. I don't know the real estate market in Brazil, but I presume there's issues with 
uh, that don't exist or that exist that maybe not in New York and, and uh, you know, uh, US, Canada, Europe. So Bitcoin can be that solution, right? For the first time, you have a global asset class that you can save in and it's an incredible store of value. I think just people have to know about it. Yeah. And then and so, going back to the appreciating dollar terms thing, um, there's a stat from someone that says that more people in Brazil own Bitcoin than own stocks in their local real, uh, stock exchange. I, I can 100% believe that. I think it's the same for most countries in LATAM. Uh, and again, going back to things appreciating in dollar terms, like I said, the top of the mountain for most people are south of Texas, which is to hold the dollar balance that would appreciate in their devaluating currency because they just base everything on their currency locally. And things, you know, as long as that's growing and they're not getting poor quickly, um, they're happy. But now when they have a little bit of Bitcoin in their portfolio that they got at like, call it a thousand bucks worth of Bitcoin. And now they look back at their portfolio and that's two thousand bucks. They're like, What? Why am I not overweight this thing in my portfolio? And then another piece that I wanted to mention is one of the things that really excites us about the opportunity with Latin is that in the past, your asset pool that was able to be financed was largely in your local jurisdiction. Your home was in Venezuela, your car was in Venezuela. Most of your big assets end up being in your local market. Bitcoin is a global asset. So for us to issue a loan in Canada against a Bitcoin it's no different than somebody sends us a Bitcoin from Venezuela, Argentina, Colombia. We can give the same rates. It's universal. This, it's mm. this, and this is the first time this has actually ever happened. Yeah. Like before this, you couldn't really finance a car in Venezuela. A, yeah. a person in Venezuela could not ac uh, apply for a loan in Canadian terms and rates and standards of service. Like that didn't exist. Yeah. We, we actually had a, a, a potential investor uh, say to us, well, why don't you charge higher rates in LATAM? Because you can. <laughs> I swear to God. And, uh, you know, they'll, they'll go unnamed uh, for, for both of our reasons. <laughs> but uh, that's not our plan. And why would we ever do that? That's yeah. completely the opposite of the, uh, the mantra that we want to build. We want to equalize things globally. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, why, why would it be any super different? super cool about Bitcoin, right? No, yeah. No, mm. Again, because you're talking about, like, people want the dollar is the top of this mountain for these people. And the dollar is still a layer, like the dollar at this point, like after, especially after my conversation with Raul yesterday, it's like, it's been abstracted. Like it is the reserve currency of the world. Yes. But what is backing it? Like, again, like we're getting into the whole reserve currency fiat type stuff, but it is getting to the point where it's so scary that the thought of people using the dollar, the dollar as their pinnacle of savings and then the dollar having a crisis and the cascading effect from that. That's is, what's so nuts, right? The yeah. U S has a financial crisis. People buy U S dollars. Like it's <laughs> like, <laughs> right? it's so strange, right? It's yeah, it's no, and that's, I mean, that's what, that's why the fed had to do repo operations yesterday, today, yesterday, and the day before was because there was a liquidity shortage of dollars. Like the dollar was neat. Like, dollar funds everything in the system mm -hmm. we may be and that, that's what worries me because it seems that like looking at a macro perspective that we may be turning into a liquidity crunch and going into more qe more rate cutting and you have people like mark carney coming out and saying the u.s dollar is not going to be reserved forever yeah. um like canadian actually, <laughs> 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 well mark carney's <sighs> so this is going to be a weird tangent, but there's a documentary out there called All the Plenaries Men, P-L-E-N-A-R-Y apostrophe S, Men. All the Plenaries Men. And it actually revolves around Mark Carney when he was the head of the BOE. 
Um, so Mark Carney, for you guys don't know, he's a central banker. He was the head of the Bank of England um, and also part of the Bank of International Settlements. It's, so there's like this weird, um, this weird situations, specifically uh, including Mark Carney, HSBC, the BIS, and how uh, he was able to sort of skirt uh, international banking laws via the BIS. You should go look at it. I'm not saying what I'm trying to get at is that Mark Carney is uh, is a crony bankster, number one. But number two, even he, being a crony bankster, being so ingrained in the system, recognizes that it's not going to work. He said, Libra, I think that's interesting. Like, yeah, we are going to need to move to a new. I, I thought that currency. was pretty ballsy at Jackson Hole. Right. And standing on U.S. soil and, and staying that. Like, but, like, if, yeah. again, the point I'm trying to make here is you go, if you go and read, or read, if you go watch the documentary, All the Plenary's Men, and you understand the, the position of power that Mark Carney is in and the complete understanding of the whole system that he has, and if he's saying that, you know something is wrong in the banking system, the monetary system. Like, he has... Like you, been at the pinnacle knowing how like we're talking about the puppet master behind the stage is pulling the strings like right that layer of the banking system and if he's going to jackson hole being like uh maybe we should think about other reserve currencies that's not a good sign yeah oh. for sure well I, I think it's just a there's just so much potential right like i think you know i might get like scolded for this but i think you know as a venezuelan like if I had the option, like a lot of people came out, you know, shutting down Libra. They were like, okay, why, why this is bullshit, blah, blah, blah. And, and who's going to use this and blah, blah, blah. And I totally get it if you're in North America that, you know, your visa taps everywhere and whatever. Like you can send Venmo and Zelle to everybody. But for the large majority of the world's population, if they could have a dollar-like instrument to essentially use for the day-to-day lives... It would be the most positive and uplifting development in, like, I think humanity's history. <laughs> really? Um, oh, absolutely. You think it's that that gravity is that large? Well, think about it for a second. Like, think about if if again, like, I think this this goal goes back to governments having to be accountable, right? Like, a, a government like Venezuela can just straight up lie to its people forever and continue printing, 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 printing. And people just will, as long if they don't have an option to compare that to, it, they will be none the wiser for the whole time, right? Libra is a way to essentially Uber your ass into things. Like when Uber came out, nobody, like I'm, I'm sure every city had a taxi lobby. I remember the first time I got an Uber, I was like, I'm never going back. <laughs> so when Uber came to be, exactly, yeah. so when Uber came to be, they just fucking rolled out their service because they knew that, or not, they, they knew they, it was, it was a better service. Mm. And essentially it got so big so quickly that when the taxi lobbies tried to essentially shut it down, the users came out and said, screw you guys. We're more, there's more of us than there are of you. So I think Libra is a way of jolting society into saying, hey, get we see the value in these dollars. You guys, are, you guys have A, never given it to us. You've never given us a stable currency. Now we see this and we can compare it to the shit you give us and we demand better service from you. And if you don't, we'll vote your ass out. You know, and that, that, that's a great tool for humanity, I think. Yeah, and I, I think the other I'll thing agree. is just about like adoption awareness. It's, what's interesting is when we talk about Bitcoin businesses in, 
again, like Canada, whatever, US, OECD, want, we want to use anything but banking language. When you talk about it in developing economies, that's the easiest language to use. And when you say, hey, you can get access to North American banking, that is like unbelievable. Like, like eyes, wide eyes open, open like, why? Like, that's the, what they're desperate for. Yeah. So and no, it's and just like a simple, solving a simple problem. And I'm also partial to this specific trajectory of stable coins being. Um, and let me be clear for any of you freaks freaking out like, oh, Marty's pumping stable coins. Like, I do still believe that stable coins are inherently instable. They are susceptible to black swan events, but they will act, they will be stable for the, uh, not a predetermined set of time, but for an extent, for a period of time at least. You'll be able to treat them as hot potatoes at least for yeah. a given period of time. Yeah, and it's. We just use them as rails. But. Again, like it is a Trojan horse, and like, oh, I got the stable coin. I have optionality to the Bolivar now. I I can use this this Libra. Exactly. Oh, this Libra is pretty cool, but oh shit, Bitcoin! Like Facebook can't even censor me. And Libra move to that. Like Libra is free marketing for the entire Bitcoin community. Yeah. And so the stat came out when uh, the Libra was announced. Uh, uh, Facebook has subsidized uh, the internet in, in Africa. This was just about Nigeria, so I'm not sure if it's all of Africa, but you can access Facebook for free on your phone in Nigeria. So 65% of Nigerians, according to the stat, believe, their internet, that, right? that believe that Facebook is the internet. Yeah. So and then you allow, you instantly put a currency that they can use. And then, yeah, as you said, how quickly can you then convert that into Bitcoin? Because now you, you have this concept of digital money because you already have a Facebook account. Well, yeah. so. and, and then here's the other thing, right? Like, People, people freak out a lot about the dollar getting debased and like the dollar being printed and the dollar getting this. Dude, like, if, you, if you put currencies on a spectrum, the dollar is freaking like an angel. <laughs> it's, like, it's like Jesus Christ reincarnated into the dollar. Like honestly, compared to like Venezuela, Bolivar or Zimbabwe or like ridiculous currencies because every country has one, most of them, the dollar is a gentleman <laughs> of the currencies. And so before the dollar, before all this thing happens to the dollar, you're going to see every other country go through literally off a cliff before it happens to the dollar. So I think that we're still going to see a lot of, call it, like it's not going to be like an impending event that just blew up in the U.S. Like you're going to see... consolidation. Yeah, you're going to see countries just capitulate, essentially, and dollarize because they have to. And the, the population demands it. And then that, you know, I think in, in, for this to get to the dollar, we're ways, ways away. Like the dom- other dominoes have to fall uh, way well before the dollar. I mean, that's the way I see it, at least just because I've, I just lived around way shittier currencies way my whole life, right? Yeah. No, and it's... And well, that also worries me, too. What worries me is somebody who's grown up American as American as you can get born in Philadelphia the cradle of freedom America was born in Philadelphia it's the greatest city in this country Um, but uh, what scares me and more particularly knowing I don't want to sound cocky but like no just from studying it in college and in my career the economy like the point where we're at now where you have Trump on Twitter screaming at Chairman Powell to like lower rates and do QE like that's what, like as an American, like even though we are the pinnacle and we are the the best looking gentleman of the currency <laughs> on the block, it's like whoa! It looks like the best looking gentleman took a hit of meth. It's and not it's, a good look. It's getting crazy, <laughs> right? Well, that but that's the state of currency in the world right now. Like the yeah, state of money know. in the world. It's a race towards the bottom. It is. Like there was that's well, I think that Monday the bent that I wrote was a tweet 
by this dude, Charlie Bellello, who's like a financial Twitter guy. I mean, he just like listed out 19 central banks and 19 of the biggest central banks. Uh, you only need four. You really only need four. The, the Fed, ECB, BOJ, and the PBOC. They're on that list. They're all easing at the same time. They're literally in a race to devalue their currency. Like in the U.S. is entering that race, to, or at least Trump wants the U.S. to enter that race as well because we're in a trade like and like again like the the uh correlation not causation about the oil prices going up and people thinking that like, things were going good like this trade war like people think it's good but it's also like forcing trump to devalue the dollar as well like yeah well i think for not trump to devalue because trump can't technically devalue the dollar because the fed is a apolitical institution right. but well, he's trying to pressure them to yeah, I mean, for 50 years, it was the best uh, business decision in town, right? Because you can just print money and then you don't have the issue that every other country has because the, all the other countries soak it up. So the yeah. Venezuelans in the world take those extra dollars they are just printed and stuff them under the mattress and there's always that demand Yeah, like, because it is the reserve currency. So until the issues that you, know, you spoke about with Raul uh, are, are, are populated, then you know, it works. But it's when the entire world rejects it as a reserve currency, then you have an issue with QE. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So fuck you, Mark Carney. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! All, I mean, listen, like uh, central bankers. I mean, I, I I appreciate the ones that take a take. A, a, what I do appreciate is the fact that the guy stepped up and said, "Hey, let's try Libra." Like this is this is this could just, be just a little taste. Just, just a little. Just a little. <laughs> just see how it feels. <laughs> Uh, no, but seriously, like, I, I'm not sure how this whole thing is going to play out and like which central bank is going to allow it. But I think that sooner or later, uh, you know, digital assets will penetrate societies. They are. They yeah. are penetrating. Th- like, so that's the thing. We, like us three here, like us, we're pretty, pretty bullish on Bitcoin and we're pretty space. Digital. Yeah, we're pretty digital. <laughs> we're pretty into this stuff, if you couldn't tell. Uh, this is episode 105, I believe. Um, Kudos, bro. Talking about Bitcoin. But, like, I'm, I've reached my Bitcoin's end where I think Bitcoin, I'm like 90% sure, will be successful in the long run. Quote me on that. Quote me on that. Do it. Uh, <laughs> but it's like, again, like, you have, there's only, what, 10 to 15 million people in Bitcoin right now, 10 to 20 million people in Bitcoin right now. There's right. 8 billion people on Earth. Like, it's going to take time. It's going to take... Yeah. It's, it's A learning curve exists. The adoption curve exists. The tech hurdle exists. Like, it's going to take time. And I think, like, building services like Ledin and stuff like that help. And, like, it's all feedback loop. And as long as you're contributing to that feedback loop, just, again, find your Bitcoin Zen realize that's going to keep producing blocks as long as people are plugging in miners, as long as people are downloading node software and contributing to consensus, like this stuff's going to work. We can do our best to educate people, which is what I try to do or get people liquidity and, and make Bitcoin more useful, which is what you two are working on. And I think it's inevitable. And I think these conversations about the transition from the analog fiat world that we're used to, to the, uh, the Bitcoin world are, are fascinating, but do we really have any uh, any like way of knowing exactly how it happens? Probably not. No. Oh, I'll give you a tidbit that was very insightful like, for me today. Venezuelan rum got me like a nice warm feeling. Right. right. Very... You get a... 
So w- one thing that I heard today that, that made me actually really bullish, we were talking, we obviously can't say names, but we were meeting with some really big institutional players today that we were just talking about Bitcoin lending, which is you know what we do. And uh, one of the really fascinating things was that he basically flat out said, like, no big guys shorting Bitcoin. Like, none of the macro guys, none of the big guys, none of the institutional guys dare to short Bitcoin. That scares me. Really? Yep. Uh, are we wrong? How could we be wrong? Maybe that's how we should, we should try to, like, steal man our, our argument here. Could we be wrong? Do you think we're wrong? I think about that. But then I, I see what's happened everywhere in the world, and I, I, I just think Bitcoin's transparency and its fixed cap and just how fucking open it is for everyone to go verify it. it, it it's just very, it, how can it not win? Like, how can people, for example, like, we're Canadian. Like, we, you know, I, be, I became a Canadian citizen uh, this year. Very happy. Congrats. Thank you. Um, so we're Canadian. Like, I, I actually have tried to go to the Bank of Canada website and look for M1, M2, M3, right? Like, they should tell you. They don't have that? They don't. Well, they don't publish it. They don't? No. Nope. Bank of Canada doesn't? I mean, it's not on their website easily accessible. Like, I couldn't find it, and I consider like myself. The Bank of Canada doesn't have, like, a Fred-like website? The, well, the Saint, you, do you like the, the St. Louis Fed? The, it's called Fred, but like yeah. yeah. So they have they have a website and they have an ex, the definitions of M1, M2, M3, but they don't publish them. Really? And to me, I was like, well, hey. And then I started googling some, and I consider myself, you know, a technically apt person, and I couldn't for the life of me find what the float is for Canada, like at least easily. And that that I'm in we're in Canada. This is like and he's pretty good. At, good at google too <laughs> i become so, a google master myself so that that to me is scary as hell like if canada won't show you and i and i you know i turn the question back to you can you see what the m1 m2 m3 is for your for the united states is right now yeah that's why i've seen that website fred like yeah like I, i'm pretty sure we can. i'm gonna try and look it up right now but like that's what uh let's see m1 fred that's what i type in the yeah it's like that's what I'm saying. The St. Louis Fed, they have this. That's what I'm saying. Like, and thank you, St. Louis Fed, for providing this data. Yeah, that's beautiful. Because we have that we're able to use it against you. Like the, <laughs> <laughs> like the monetary base is my favorite chart to share. Is because it's like, look at this chart. It, it just looks so fucking unnatural. The wheel's going. It's still wow. printing. <laughs> Bart. Right? Wow. So, look at how... If you, this is we're looking at a, a chart from again fred.stlouisfed.org. It's actually incredible to give anybody all this data. It's incredible data. Uh, we're looking at the St. Louis adjusted monetary base, which basically represents the the amount of money on the Fed's balance sheet, which represents the amount of money that's been printed over time. And we're looking at the the glorious chart of the Fed's balance sheet expanding from eight hundred billion to. Uh, 4.2 trillion dollars over the course of six years between 2009 or excuse me 2008 and 2014 so so just to entertain myself can you do the same search for canada yeah let me see is this a loony just go canada m1 yeah bank of canada m1 st louis fed has it M1 for Canada, national currency. Yeah, Canada doesn't have it, but the U.S. has the data. So, yeah, I mean, this. look at that. Look at that. Yeah. Would you look at that? <laughs> that looks beautiful. I mean, beautiful for look a Bitcoiner. Chart. <laughs> so, 
M1 in Canada, so this is the amount of base money in circulation. We'll start in 1971. What the fuck happened in 1971? Crazy w- how gradual it is in Canada, though, compared to the U.S. Right? <laughs> gradual? Well, I mean... Pretty parabolic. <laughs> <laughs> gradually parabolic versus uh, a scissor graph. Yeah. No, I mean, the, the U.S. monetary base, like the Fed's monetary base is... Yeah. At election <laughs> no it's not even no it was that was yeah that was the open markets by the way i want to give a huge shout out to satoshi for putting the halvening on election year <laughs> uh, oh my gosh historically there's uh, i mean this i learned from my dad the the best years to do business is the year before and the year of an election uh, really but there no incumbent can afford a recession <laughs> right well that's why t- <laughs> Well, like going back to Trump screaming at Powell and stuff like that, that's what makes me feel like it's not this in particular that makes me feel this way. It is a confirming fact uh, for my thesis is my thesis is that the system is fucking broken and it cannot be fixed. And uh, a fact, a data point I'm going to use to prove this is Trump before his presidency and after his presidency commenting on the Federal Reserve's policy and like basically the state of monetary policy in the United States and before he gets elected office, he's why is the Fed, print, Fed printing this much money? Like we need to get back to like a sounder currency, blah 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 blah. Now he's the exact opposite of who he was fired before up. he got elected. Yeah, fired up, <laughs> fucking print. I'm gonna, like he's literally chewy, and that's the other crazy. Like this is what's like we're laughing, but like it scares me because the Federal Reserve is supposed to be a political institution. Like you're not supposed to have the government in the U.S. influence like. Technically, like we're, we're just talking semantics here. You're not supposed to have the government influence the Fed at all. Right. And it's usually been done, influencing the Fed has been done slyly via press conferences and stuff like that in the past. But now it's just a, fr- and like, and even back then it was like, all right, obviously Obama or Bush was posturing with this uh, statement towards the Fed to compel them to. Yeah push a decision in a certain way. Now it's gotten to the point where it's like straight up, like I'm calling out the Fed by name, the chairman by name <laughs> to do this policy by this time. And it's the, the whole, again, there's like a, a gentleman's game to it. Where yeah. It's like, you don't mention it. You don't mention the fact that you're playing. Pr- this game. Prior presidents weren't as active on Twitter. Exactly <laughs> that. And like, but it's like that, the whole aspect of like a gentleman's game has been thrown out the door right right you're like before it's like you don't mention it but people know you're mentioning it and yeah. it's like yeah but now it's like all right if there aren't any like even gentleman roles to this game like what game are we playing well yeah and I, I completely agree with you and i think that's a really scary slippery slope like we in venezuela we the, we don't even have the the illusion that the government is separate and there's a separation of powers and that this guy doesn't talk to that guy. Like, that, that's long gone out the window in Venezuela. Well, again, like, so we're on that scale towards where your government or where right. Venezuelan's government is now. Right. And, that like, is, and I don't want to slip towards that. And like, no, how, that, that is scary. Yeah. And, and, is it and, inevitable? And, and, after, and you don't have that, but I guess you spent years studying this, right? Would you think it's fair to say that everyone puts as much thought into it as, as you do, right? Like, no, I mean, no, no. someone reading headlines... Right. But the, the other piece, too, like I see stuff that happens in the States that makes me think, you know, hey, this is just like any other country. Like, you know, maybe this is a different whole can of worms with the whole Jeffrey Epstein thing. Oh, like, my God. Well, like, everybody in the U.S., that dude was fucking murdered. If you're listening to this oh, right now, that dude was fucking murdered. In Venezuela, we're used to, you know, political dissidents getting taken in for questions and then they 
surprisingly jumped out of the 10th floor balcony and then committed suicide. Committed suicide by two shots to the back of the Yeah, head. and so we, in Venezuela, we're like, you know, we, we're used to this shit. We're like, okay, this is just, like, obviously that's not what happened. Like, ridiculous. But then, and I'm not, you know, to me, I mean, I don't, I don't want to put words on what happened because frankly, I, I don't have the facts, but it just looks really fucking bad. <laughs> you know, like it's a, you had one job kind of thing. <laughs> No, that dude was fucking murdered. Like, I hope that America, I think that America is, like, the Jeffrey Epstein incident in particular is like, all right, like, this was so fucking blatant. There's so much evidence that something was going on. This dude was in one of the highest security prisons in the country, and he's able to commit suicide after being on suicide watch. He hung himself with sheets that would rip if, like, a 200 man, a 200 pound man, like, try to hang himself with them like it's but all right the crux of what i'm trying to get at is there's a two-tier justice system and it's not fair and we deserve to live in a world that's fair and i think the digital age in particular has awoken more and more people up to the fact that it is not fair and we were talking about earlier like when uh when chavez was uh blaming the capitalists for the high coke prices and stuff like that people like oh my god oh my god like I believe you, I believe you. Now, people have more access to information. It'd be like, all right, I'm going to call your bullshit. And I think Bitcoin, and then Bitcoin on top of that gives people power to say, all right, I'm going to work with outside of the system. Like, I don't even want to have to deal with your bullshit. Like, I don't have to here. Therefore, I'm going to opt out. Exactly. And that was my uh, Venezuelan rum drunk rant there. (laughs) (laughs) We've actually pretty much polished the whole thing. (laughs) (laughs) It's pretty impressive. I'm sorry. Uh, I, uh... Yeah, but I think, you know, one of the things that, that first of all, I love, I love uh, you know, the freedom and what the United States and Canada stand for. Like, I think it's, it's, it's a beacon of liberty in the and world. Well, people have to realize, too, it's an idea over a law book, too. Yeah. And so I think the U.S. is, it's, to me, it's almost, it's, it's very important that the U.S. stays free and independent and, and you know, the powers stay separated from each other. Um, but the thing is, you know, as a Venezuelan, like a lot of people, and, and again, going back to like what, you know, there's a big thing about Bitcoin fixes this. Like, I, I love that meme. I think it's a great meme. Uh, as a Venezuelan, I don't think Bitcoin fixes my country. Personally, there's a lot of limitations to what it can do. And the best case is just it helps smart people get the fuck out, right? And that's brain drain. Uh, so those people largely won't come back. Uh, for example, like a good friend of mine said this to me the other day, and he's, he's I can't, I can't, I don't think he's wrong, essentially, but this, but I didn't see it this way. He says, Mauricio's like, when the country changes, it's like, who do you think is going to come back? It's like, do you think the guys that made it in North America are going to just even think of coming back? What we're going to get is just the guys that failure to launch. Like, we're only going to get people that just feel like they could be better back home doing less. We're not going to get the guys that are working hard and made it in OECD countries. They're staying there. What's their incentive for them to come back? What, help rebuild? Help do what? Like, their kids are safe. They're going to, like, Ivy League schools. They're doing great. Why the fuck are they going to come back? It's so fucking sad. It's a one-way trip, bro. Yeah. Like, it's, it's not a round trip. <sighs> you fucking hate to hear that shit, dude. But it's true. Yeah. Like, he's, I mean, I'll give you my case. I'm in Venezuela. I'm doing great. Levin's doing great. My wife's very happy in Toronto. We're both Venezuelan. My daughter's in Canada. 
I'll give you an example, for example. This Christmas, my whole family's back home. This Christmas, everyone's having Christmas with my nonna, who's 98 and lives in Merida, that's a beautiful town in Venezuela. That, that's what I did every year growing up. I went to Christmas at my nonna's. Um, the, my country stopped issuing passports uh, about two years ago, Venezuela. And Venezuela has a very nasty law that if you hold dual citizenship, you can enter Venezuela as a foreign citizen, but you cannot leave Venezuela without a current Venezuelan passport. So because I don't have a current Venezuelan passport, neither does my wife, I actually can't go without running the risk of not being let out. Um, that's been the case for two years. Damn. So, Sorry, dude. No, that's, that's fine. I mean, my, my daughter is named after my grandmother. How's that weigh on you, though? Like, uh, fuck, man. Like, <laughs> frankly, it's, it's really rough. Like, yeah. frankly, it's... it's uh, man, I mean, I, I have... Without, you know, I'm, a, I'm a half a bottle of rum deep, so I'm not going to get really emotional here, but it weighs on me, bro. Like, I haven't seen my nonna in three years. Like, my, my daughter's named after my 88-year-old grandmother, and they don't know each other. And I don't know if they will. And that's, that's the biggest one for me. Like, it's that, fucking tragic, That's the big one. And, and, and listen, I can sit here and tell you how sad I am and all this other shit, but there's people that got it way worse. And, uh, and so I don't, I don't want... This, this, this is by no means a pity party, but I think that, you know, I've considered myself incredibly fortunate, and um, I would love to go back and help my country, but the reality is that even going back there to try to help my country presents a risk on my life, right? Like... So when you have a daughter, when you have a family, you got to start thinking about other shit. And that's what I mean when I say it's a one-way trip, right? Because if you make it and you did well, you're not coming back, right? Like you, you found a better place. Yeah. Uh, so that, that's actually brutal because I like to go to sleep and, I, and think that my country is going to go back to the heyday and what a beautiful thing that it once was. But the reality is that everyone that, a lot of people that I knew, so like out of my, out of my 10 best friends that I graduated high school with, Five are still there. Five are gone. Um, and even if I went back, like, I'm frankly speaking very candidly, some of the ones that stayed are doing okay, but I'm not really a fan of what they're doing to earn a living because <laughs> anyone that's doing okay is working for the government or with the government. So they just kind of became one more of this system, this broken system. And, and essentially, when I see, when I see Argentina... Right, like I see Macri that really wanted to try and really wanted to do something good, but he has this cancer on the outside being this other political party telling people, you don't have to work, you don't have to work, you don't have to work. And unfortunately, we don't have enough education there for people to discern the difference between the two and the consequences of that decision. Mm -hmm. And so people just keep selling socialism, free food, no work, uh, and, and the weak minds end up going and voting for it just because they don't know any better. Mm -hmm. But I think, like, to bring it back to Bitcoin, like, what's amazing is, like, Bitcoin became the best option for Mauricio, right? And so for so many people, they became an entrepreneur because of Bitcoin. And so I think what, you know, the, the view of, you know, to, to tie back to what we were talking about earlier is what, what's our view of outlook of it. I think Bitcoin will work because of all the people involved in it. So it's self-fulfilling because you have all these smart, hardworking people building it and because they're working hard to it and because they have self-interest in making it work it just keeps churning and they keep getting more people into it and growing that way so i think it's it's super fascinating how many entrepreneurs bitcoin's created well i can say with certainty that i'm very proud to be on the front lines with you two gentlemen um, 
But like, and let's end it on this topic, I guess. Like, do you think the only way out for countries like Venezuela and people in similar situation that Venezuelans are in is a parallel system that is completely bereft of the, the handcuffs of traditional governments and nation states? I think, um, you know, one of the things I love about Bitcoin, and I think that in order to be bullish about Bitcoin, I, I'm, you know, as a Venezuelan, I can see how Bitcoin helps the, the humans in Venezuela that need help. I can also see how Bitcoin can facilitate avoiding sanctions for my government. You know, as a base case, I believe that there are more good people trapped in bad countries than bad actors around the world and it being enabled by Bitcoin. That's the crazy thing. It's because like, when you look at like, the way the world works, and the, how does the world work? It's politicians meeting with each other and deciding things. And yep. to be a politician, you have to be a sociopath. You have to be crazy. You have to be insane. You have to want power, which you should never want power over a, a great number of humans. It's weird, number one. <laughs> totally. Number two, everybody <laughs> should have their own autonomy. But... That is like that, that, and like this is a big thing. I've I say a lot in person. I don't know how many times I've said it on this podcast, but like the whole mechanics of modern day democracy, or not even democracy, modern day government, where you have somebody go vote on somebody else and politicians. So not modern day communism or democracy. Modern day politicians. What is the mechanism of a politician? A politician is supposed to represent a voice of their constituency. Why do we need that today? We have Twitter. We have the internet. Like, we do not need to reallocate our voices to politicians. Like, we can... And I'm not, like, screaming for direct democracy or anything like that, but I I do not think that we need to be beholden to these archaic uh, ideas of government that have been around for 300 years when we live with the fucking internet. Like, we should not have... In America, there should not be less than 2,000 people deciding what happens for 350 million people. Like, that doesn't make any sense to me. It doesn't scale to me. And just brush that across the world and world governments. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. Right, um, yeah. I, I think, you know, what I see Bitcoin as is, is, is an enabler of freedom. Like, people freeze up your wealth. And with that, you can free yourself, right? And largely, when I look at the world today as far as where I would like to position my capital like if you look at what happens in China you look at what happens in Latin what happens in Russia when a wealthy Russian makes out what where do they buy property here Miami <laughs> here in Miami and, and so when a, when a wealthy Latin person does well where do they buy property Miami so people want their money to be free and people want to be free as well uh, what other countries do is essentially they try to block the transfer of wealth from their pocket to someone else's pocket. But people find a way around that, right? So I think what Bitcoin does is if, if people essentially were now coming to the U.S. via dirt roads, Bitcoin just opens up the biggest fucking highway you've ever seen for freedom of wealth and freedom of immigration to go to the places they want to be in. And it's almost in your face, too. It's like, hey, you can't do anything about this. Like, I want to get my wealth here. I'm going to. Sorry. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and the other thing too is like there's there's a limit to it too. Like in Venezuela, like I'll give you an example. Like I can have all the Bitcoin in the world, but then if I have a convoy from the Fias, which is their you know hit team, come with like you know twenty five people holding guns, 
you know, all the private keys in the world are not going to do, right? Like I'm going to have to yeah. spill the beans, right? So there, there's a certain limit to this sovereignty that Bitcoin allows. Like I, I really like, you know, people, I, we won't get into like the gun thing. Venezuela is a very gun heavy place. Like everyone packs heat in Venezuela, but it's, it, it actually very rarely does it ever work in their favor <laughs> because really? nine times out of 10, a gun is a liability, not an asset, uh, in, a, in a violent environment, right? So, you know, in a violent environment with everybody packs and you're, you're just literally there with your gun and there's seven guys with seven guns around you, there's a limit to everything, right? Some randomness and... Yeah, so I think Bitcoin's great in that it's, it's it, A, it's completely encrypted, it's, nobody has to know, you can just be sly about it and get the hell out. But this idea that I'm just going to keep accumulating Bitcoin and living in Venezuela and no one's ever going to find out or blah, blah, blah. It's like, I think Bitcoin's great to like get some wealth and get the fuck out. But in, in those countries, largely the people that discover Bitcoin, they want freedom. There's not going to be some circular Bitcoin economy within Venezuela anytime soon. I, I think most people that make it and they realize that they're going to see that. And, and for example, like I'll give you my case. And it's not like, a product of Bitcoin either. It's a product no. of their situation. Their right. yeah. Like you, you can have all the Bitcoin in the world, but and you want, and you want to have every good intention in the world if you want to go change Venezuela. But if the reality is that you have two kids and a wife and going there and trying to get, a, get elected and change the country is going to get you shot, there's, there's just a whole world of pressure for you not to do this and go to a place where you can just be a great professional, right? Like, yeah. <sighs> Fuck, man. Why can't everybody just be chill? <laughs> we got to get them some Bitcoin and get them in the U.S. <laughs> uh, or Canada. Or Canada. Yeah, Canada. No, but that's like... It's like that, why, that's the why, 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 are, why are all these politicians so fucking sociopathic? It just... Why do you want this control over us? Why? Why? Is it that... Uh, do you get a boner every night? <laughs> like, is that what it is? Is it a sexual thing? I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know, man. I mean, uh, I think these guys, some of them have good intentions, but they just like seemingly they don't think th they don't think things through. Um, you know, I, I think Macri, for example, like to give you an Argentina example, I think he had good intentions, but a lot of times you can have all the great intentions in the world, but it just doesn't pan out the way you want it to. Yeah, well, and that's and this is a beautiful place maybe to end it too. It's like that's like the beauty of Bitcoin, it's distributed nature is like, it is banking on the fact that centralized top down hierarchies are not going to provide the solution for everybody. I think it's got to be emergent bottom up, not top down. Like here's the solution that we're going to imbue on you. It's got to be right. like, here's the solution that we came to together and realized was the best as we were trial and erroring this right. on the way up, not the way down. Yeah. I'm drunk. That's a poetry, man. <laughs> <laughs> Gentlemen, uh, let's get some parting notes. What, uh, what do you guys want to tell the freaks as we, as we get, we're two hours and 15 minutes in now. It's about to be like the fifth longest Tales from the Crypt episode ever. Uh, <laughs> no, I just want to give a shout out to my, my, my people in Venezuela. I think I'm like one of the few Venezuelans to be here. Uh, so uh, I just want to say, you know, panas, uh, just feel free to reach out, feel free to, you know, connect with us and, and uh, you know, Keep using Bitcoin, like keep keep learning, keep listening to Tale from the Crypt, it's fucking bomb. And uh, and you know, come hit us up when you ever if you ever wanna if you ever want some help or if you wanna leave, like we're doing a lot of great things things in Venezuela too. Like we're doing meetups and stuff and we're we're trying to help people out. And if you wanna learn about mining, if you wanna learn how you can get into Bitcoin, feel free to reach out to us. We'll we'll tell you, we'll help you out in your language. Like 
and, and, and really what we want is just to get you onboarded onto Bitcoin and give you access to getting the fuck out if you want to. Yeah, no, I'd just like to thank you, Marty, for having us on. And, uh, you know, I think everyone learns a ton from listening to what you do and the people you bring on. Uh, I definitely want to thank our team in Toronto. Uh, it's amazing to work with everyone and, uh, you know, everything that we're building. It's, it's super exciting and, and really thank the whole community. I mean, it's, it's awesome how collaborative it is and how everyone's working together. And just I think the more we can focus on getting the word out of Bitcoin and just finding like super easy ways for people to get involved, the better it's going to be for everyone. Gentlemen, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you for bringing this uh, Venezuelan rum. It's again, it's very happy drunk. I'm like giddy right now. If you can't tell, I've been smiling for like the last 20 minutes. Exactly. I think this is a very informative conversation. I, I learned a lot. Like, and, and again, and like going back to like what we were talking about earlier, like uh, there was a lot of narratives that come out. Like Bitcoin is the panacea. Not, I don't want to say anybody saying Bitcoin is the panacea, but like everybody's like, oh, Bitcoin is perfect for these people. But you get like things are different when you get on the ground and. There's limits to everything. Mauricio, Adam, thank you for coming and sharing your story. I think uh, the freaks are going to fucking love it. Go check out Ledin, L-E-D-N dot I-O, especially if you're in Canada or Latam. Are you guys in America yet? Four states. Four states? Which states? Uh, Florida, uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, Shout out to the Union of California. 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 Uh, I, our savings account is actually available for U.S. residents, uh, but, uh, but our loans are in four states. I have to get back to you in the other two. Okay. All right. Well, thank you guys for coming through. Thank you for making this trip to Williamsburg. It's been a pleasure. It's been a long time coming. I'm pumped to see what you guys are doing. Um, that's what we got this week, freaks. Peace and love.